Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com G-O-M. There's over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player, but I bet you'll want book one of A Song of Ice and Fire, A Game of Thrones. I remember everything about that day. Your helmet, your horse, the rake lines in the dirt along the list. Where the sun was in the sky when you knocked Balon Swan from his horse. And the dent in your shield when you handed it back to me. I'll remember it all until I die. Seven blessings, squires and cupbearers, and welcome to our podcast. I'm Lord Sterling, Sir Duncan the Fearsome, Keeper of Loki. And I'm Lady Kristen of House McWuggleburgino, mother of rescue dogs and ruler of carpool madness. <laughs> and this is Game of Microphones, episode 59. On this episode of our series, Rewatch, we're covering Game of Thrones, Season 2, Episode 7, A Man Without Honor. And just for everybody who's unaware, potentially, this is a spoiler-filled podcast, so we are speaking about the episode from the perspective of someone who's current with the series at this point in January 2018. That means you've seen up through Season 7, Episode 7. So this is your spoiler warning. Huzzah! Warning. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Shall we jump right into it? I think we shall. All right. Would you like to go first, Lord Duncan? Sure. Sir Duncan? Sure. My lord, my lord. Okay. My number five is The Lion and the Wolf Part 3. And okay. <laughs> and that is uh, Tywin Lannister and Arya's interactions for the third episode, I think, that we've got um, gotten a, some action up there. So that was pretty fun. It The scene starts out with the reigns of Castamere ominously playing over Harrenhal as we enter Tywin's um, chamber area, and he's sniffing the dart that killed um, Amory Lorch, I think that's who it was, in the last episode. Yes. Um and he sniffs it and says that it's wolfbane, a rare substance, and so it's definitely not a common assassin, um, which we know is for sure, because this is Jack and Hagar, the faceless man. Um, so that's a ultra-high-level master assassin. <laughs> 
Um, so the, he goes on to, he's talking with the mountain at this point, and the mountain's like, we've hanged 20 men last night. <laughs> you know? and, oh my gosh, I'm so glad that they recast that guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, he, I thought it was, his voice sounded cool, but um, the, uh, yeah, the current mountain guy is just amazing. You know, you can't beat that guy for sure. <laughs> but Ty- Tywin's like, I don't care if we if you hanged a hundred guys. I want this guy's name. Somebody tried to kill me. You know, I want their name and their head. And uh, Sir Gregor <laughs> goes on to say that they think it was an infiltrator from the Brotherhood without banners. And Tywin says that, that what a it's, you know pre- what a pretentious name for a group of outlaws. And goes on to say that he wants them all killed. And uh, to burn the villages and the farms locally and let them know what it means to choose the wrong side. Um, And Arya is kind of just around hearing all this happen. Um, She brings in a plate of food for Tywin and asks him if he's hungry. And he tells her that it's it's, um, that he's not hungry. He doesn't like mutton. So he wants her to uh, to eat instead, and she's like, "Oh, you know, I'll eat later in the kitchen." And he tells her it's bad manners to refuse a lord. So uh, <laughs> she she sits down and starts eating. And um, what great scenes with Arya and Tywin, right? Gosh, I wish I I really wish that there were more of them. You know, I don't think that they spent enough time together because every single scene that they have together is just gold. Um. So, yeah, I totally agree with you. And the conversation that they have in the next couple of minutes after that is just wonderful. Yeah, it's so funny. She, he says to her, you're small for your age. I suppose you've been <laughs> underfed your whole life. And at this point... I like, eat a lot. Yeah. Don't grow. <laughs> yeah. Gosh. That's so funny. And at this point, it really seems like Tywin doesn't know who she is. Um, like, that he hasn't figured out that she's a Stark, just based on this part of this conversation. Um, cause he's disclosing crazy stuff to her and he really seemed like if he, I don't think that was an information prod asking her if she's been underfed, you know, it was more of, I think him just speculating about her. Um, see, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead. Were you going to contradict that? Well, I, I was just a little bit. I, cool. um, when he offered her the food, I thought that he was testing her to see how she ate. Oh, to test her manners. She ate and... as highborn, she would, you know, you're taught how, how to eat like yeah. a lady and yeah you're mm-hmm. um you're um what's that that stuff called etiquette etiquette yes something that you don't have no i'm just kidding <laughs> <laughs> fuck you um <laughs> you got me um <laughs> so uh yeah it's such a funny conversation he goes on and gets pretty serious with her here, and he's saying, hmm, this will be my last war, win or lose, and, um, which is pretty interesting that he's thinking about this. You know, you can tell he's getting old. He's reflecting on his life and his dynasty, his legacy at this point in his life, obviously. This whole, every time we see him, he's talking about his legacy and a dynasty to last a thousand years and whatnot. And he's talking about it again in this episode when he explains what it is to Arya. But uh, she asks him if she if he had ever lost before, <laughs> and he kind of laughs and he's like, "You think I'd be in my position that I'm in now if I had lost a war?" And she shakes her head, like thinking about it. Oh yeah, good but point. he has lost a war. He was he was the hand of the king for the Mad King. True, but he turned on the Mad King. Yeah, he did when he knew it was lost. Mm, yeah, potentially. Yeah. I mean. Yeah, he hasn't lost a war, and the fact that he knows when to go to the other to the winning side. But. <laughs> yeah, 
you yeah. know, I don't know if that's if that's being a, a warrior or a conqueror or if that's just being, you know, a real shifty dude. Yeah, I agree. So I just I thought that that was a really interesting question that she asked. And that was like a, a nice little exchange there, because, you know, I think that. I think maybe she was probably trying to size him up. Like, have you ever lost a war? Like, I'm going to beat your head in and your entire family kind of thing, you know? <laughs> yeah. And he's like, do you think I'd be where I was? <laughs> yeah, right. Who do, you, who do you think you're talking to? Um, that's pretty great. And so th- he goes on to say, um, this is the, the war that he'll be remembered for. And this is the first time we hear it called by its colloquial uh, name, I think, right? The War of Five Kings. So the first time we've heard it on the show. Um, I want to say that Daenerys said it a couple weeks ago when she was talking about the usurper being dead. Ah, uh, I think but that you... I think that at that point it was four kings because it was right before Balon rebelled and Theon took over okay. Winterfell. Um, because I remember okay. taking note mentally that she's somebody said four kings because uh, Balon hadn't rebelled yet. Okay, yeah, because I know that Renly and um, Stannis were talking on the Hillcliff and they were talking about how many kings do we have? How many? Right. Is it? You know? <laughs> yeah, that was funny. So uh, Arya is holding a knife, and as Tywin is kind of looking out the window, talking about the War of Five Kings, she like her. The camera goes to a perspective from Arya, and it sort of zooms in on his neck, and you can see that she's thinking about trying to kill him. And he turns back to her suddenly, and she kind of like spazzes and turns back with the knife, and looks kind of shook yeah. for a moment as he says, "My legacy will be determined in the coming months," and asks her, "Do you know what legacy means?" And she uh, shakes her head, and she's she, in like sort of a cute way. She's all sort of flustered from uh, from him catching her as she's plotting to kill him, essentially. And so she kind of like takes that flusteredness and and transforms it into confusion about what a dynasty is in in her response to this question. So I thought that was pretty funny, and really good acting by Maisie Williams in this whole scene. Like very nuanced performance. Um, it stands up to Charles Dance's performance, which says a lot. Um, really Agreed. impressive going back and forth between these two. Well, and he, his answer is is interesting when when uh, when he teaches her the meaning of the word, and he says it's what remains of you when you're gone. So I took that I I, I took that as him being so reflective and him being so. Um, I, I don't know, like moody and brooding, like real Jon Snow-like, you know, about like legacy and what's going to be there and whatever. But um, but I think it's it's looking at this war. His grandson has started. He's having to clean up this mess. His daughter is a disaster. His son is captured and could get killed at any moment. And the only son he has left is this imp who he hates. And... I'm sure that he thinks every day about his legacy at this point. Yeah, especially you know? like you're saying with the with his son who's acting crazy and in the wake of losing the previous king, right now is his moment to solidify their reign, their power over the throne and the the kingship and cement his family as the ruling family essentially. So it's it's as an opportunist and as somebody a family that's been on the rise under the leadership of Tywin for decades at this point. Um, it's just a natural step to to do exactly what he's trying to do and solidify that dynasty. But with him talking about how it's going to be his last war and everything like that, you can tell that he thinks he's getting old. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, don't you think though? I mean, if if he had um, if he had maybe spent a little bit more time teaching his kids how to be him instead of you know conquering and scheming and thinking. I mean, he's an incredible mind, an incredible ruler. There's there's no question about who the most powerful man in Westeros is. But without <laughs> yeah. Tywin Lannister, that family doesn't work because they're all a bunch of village idiots that have too much entitlement and power to know what to do with it. Right. And it's all a pissing contest at that point. It really is. So it's an interesting it's an interesting dynamic for that family. I mean, you could really kind of apply that to today's world, you know, with parents that are so um, consumed with their own success in their own life that they kind of forget that they have children to raise until it's too late. Sure, definitely. Um, and I think that that's kind of um, that's kind of the the nucleus of what the Lannisters have become. So yeah, he uh, he tells her about what a legacy is and how it's what you pass down to your children and your children's children. It's what remains of you when you're gone. And then he goes on to talk about the castle that they're at, Hall, which is cool because remember a couple weeks ago when we first saw Hall, just the castle itself made my number five or my, my top five because it's such an interesting place in terms of Westerosi history. And mm-hmm. we get our history lesson finally in, in, in this scene when um, Tywin explains that Heron the Black, Heron Hoare, thought that Hall would be his legacy. It's the greatest fortress ever built, he says. The tallest towers, the strongest walls, at least in Westeros, because I think there are much larger buildings um, in ancient Valyria and even in places like, um, where is it, Volantis, where the the temple, uh, the great red temple to Valor, or to Relor, I can't remember what it's called, but it's supposed to be a huge building, monstrous uh, cathedral. So, um, so it's the t- it has the tallest towers, Her- Heron Hall, the, the strongest walls. The Great Hall had 35 hearths. It's funny, he says, 35, can you imagine? And as he's standing next to this one like hearth, and you can see how big that is and how much that would heat that whole area. And just imagining a, a hall with 35 hearths had to be huge. That's such a dad thing to say, too. It's like of a, you know, dads that take their kids on these, you know, history uh, field trips and he's like can you imagine this and the kid's like dude I just want to eat my dinner <laughs> <laughs> yeah. he's like, but it's so cool like imagine I'm standing next to one right. there's 34 <laughs> more of these you know yeah that's, that's me like for sure I'm not I'm not a dad but yeah yeah I'm the same one that's the same, <laughs> same guy I'm not dad <laughs> and so also this is pretty cool I realized this for the first time watching it this time through that as he's talking about this how you know, Black Heron thought that the, that Heron Hall would be his legacy, and how it ended up destroyed and ruined and melted, and how Heron and his son were um, were roasted inside. He uh, he's essentially foreshadowing the ruin of his own legacy. With yes, the, the I got the of same his own, thing. Yeah, the deaths of his grandchildren, all of them. Yeah, the uh, the ruin of his house is um, the capture of Casterly Rock by the like his own murder at the hand of his son. Um, the the ruining of their name by the 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 widespread rumors or allegations of incest between Jamie and Cersei. Yes, you know it's totally foreshadowing everything horrible that's about to happen to his own family. It's funny because my number my number three was this scene, but differently. 
Oh, okay. So yeah, if, they, if you want to jump in, feel free to... I've been jumping in, man. Okay. <laughs> so um, he goes on to say to Arya that now Hall is a blasted ruin, and he asks her if she knows what happened. And this is important because it begins to reveal her as being an educated, highborn lady, essentially. Yes. And she's like, dragons? He says, yes, you know, the dragons happened. Heron Hall was built to withstand an attack from the land. A million men could have marched on these walls, which parallels Theon talking about how Rob said that 500 men could fend off 10,000 at Winterfell. Mm-hmm. And a million men would have been repelled if they had attacked Heron Hall. But an attack from the air with, with dragon fire. <laughs> and uh, Heron and all of his sons were roasted, roasted alive, alive within these walls. And at that moment, Arya sort of gazes around in, in wonder at, at the, the place where they are. And again, Maisie is just doing an incredible job as Arya in this whole scene. Very nuanced performance. And um, so Tywin continues, Aegon Targaryen changed the rules. That's why every child alive still knows his name 300 years after his death. And she steps in and says, Aegon and his sisters. And he's like, hmm? And surprised, you know, that she knows about this, basically. And he's, she says it, it wasn't just Aegon riding his dragon. It was Rhaenys and Visenya, too. It was the women, too, yeah, bitch. Yeah, and I knew that you were going to like that. It was the women, too. <laughs> yeah, two to one women. <laughs> the ratio. Yeah, and one of them was a badass with big sword and big dragon. Yeah, right? well, well, Dark Warrior is it's a slightly smaller than a regular dark sword. Dark sister. Yeah, just, sorry, Dark sister, uh, Dark Warrior. We're going to talk about that when we get to the news and the Game of Thrones is myth, and with we talk about Sandor and Dark Warrior is actually what Duncan translates to. Um, so subconsciously, oh, I guess. It was meant to be from birth, man. Yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> So you know, he tells Arya, correct, student of history, are you? And she, Arya goes on to say, Rhaenys rode Meraxes and Visenya rode Vagar, And she's thinking about it in wonder. And you can tell by the tone of her voice. Well, you learn so much about Arya just in, in the way that she tells that little piece of history and what she really cares about, you know? Yeah. And Tywin learns it, too. He figures it out. And there's a good moment here where he's like, I'm sure I knew that when I was a boy, you know, or he can't, can't even remember the details that Arya remembers about this important Westeros history. Um, and she goes on to say, Visenya Targaryen was a great warrior. She had a Valyrian sword she called Dark Sister. Hmm, she's a hero heroine of yours, I take it. Aren't most girls more interested in the pretty maidens from the songs? You know, and she says, most, <laughs> most girls, girls are idiots. <laughs> yeah, I love that line. <laughs> Which is so funny. Arya is a girl after my own heart. <laughs> so Tywin laughs and tells her that Arya reminds him of his own daughter, which cracks me up because his own daughter is on Arya's kill list. Yeah, like number two. Yeah, she doesn't want to be anything like Cersei. So he's like, where did you learn all this stuff about Visenya and her Valyrian steel sword? And she goes on to say, from her father, of course. And he, Her father, the stonemason. Yeah, the stonemason. He's like, he was a pretty well-read stonemason, wasn't he? You know, like, implying that there's more to this story than, than she's saying. And she sort of stares... And uh, he says, can't say I've ever met a literate stonemason, you know, and so she sort of snarkily replies, have you met many stonemasons? <laughs> <laughs> and he kind of 
lets her know what the situation is there for a second. Careful now, girl. Yeah. I enjoy you, but be careful, you know? And then tells her, take that back to the kitchen. You know, eat what you want. And girl, and before she walks away completely, she turns and he says, my lord. My lord. Yeah. Lowborn girls say, my lord, not my lord. If you're going to pose as a commoner, you should do it properly. And this is where it, it makes it also seem like he doesn't know that she's a Stark because I feel like I don't know. It just doesn't it doesn't seem like he knows. You know what I mean? What do you think? I love it that you and I go back and forth on this all the time. It's really ambiguous. We're like one week he totally knows, and then next week oh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty funny. I mean, they you know they wrote it well to where you, the point where you can't tell. I agree. So. She she immediately snaps back cleverly and says, My mother served Lady Dustin for many years, my lord. She taught me how to speak proper. Properly. <laughs> you know, and is super slick with that, makes it seem like a legit mistake, and he's like, You're too smart for your own good, you know. Has anyone ever told you that? And she says hilariously, Yeah, yeah <laughs> yes, you know. And uh he nods and tells her, Go on, and she walks off and Tywin sort of sits back and has a sort of genuine smile as he sips his drink and he seems to really like her, which is funny. Yeah, and I think that she kind of likes him too. I mean, she hates him and wants him dead, but at the same time I think that she's learning a lot from him. Yeah, I think she realizes that he's more complex than just an evil guy. In the same, in one conversation, you know, he's talking about he orders somebody to go burn the farms of the local villagers, but then is like offering her a meal. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. Well, he likes who he likes. Right. Yeah, that's crazy. You know? Yep, yep. I mean, we all like who we like. Just like Jon Snow. So, do we do we talk about, like, the history of stuff as far as, like, the books go? Because I looked up kind of the history of this Valerian Steel Sword Dark Sister. Oh, yeah. I'm, I think we can talk a little bit about that. So, Arya talks about how um Visenya has this valerian steel sword and you know i've i last summer my cousin and i we made up a list of all of the valerian steel swords that um that the houses had and where they all were because we were trying to figure out okay where is all the valerian steel it's important Um, to know (laughs) Yeah, and, you know, we had some time on our hands one afternoon, and I wish I still had the list and everything, because we wrote everything down next to it, but uh, with Dark Sister, so... um, Are you going to talk about the theory? Visenya has it. No, I I don't... I don't know that theory. Okay, well, you continue, and I'll, I'll mention it when we get to it. Okay, so Dark Sister is mentioned in the Tales of Duncan Egg novellas, um, and it's one of two Valerian steel swords belonging to House Targaryen, the other being Blackfire. Dark Sister was wielded by Visenya Targaryen, Prince Daemon Targaryen, and later Prince Aemon the Dragon Knight, one of the bastard sons of King Aegon the Fourth. Brendan Rivers, known as Blood Raven, was the last known wielder of Dark Sister. He used it as the Battle of the Redgrass Field. He used it at the Battle of Redgrass Field in his famous duel with his half brother, Agor Bittersteel Rivers, who founded the Golden Company. And the sword's fate 
after Bloodraven was stripped of his titles and exiled to the wall is unknown, as is that of its sister blade, Blackfire. Yeah, that's important to note is that both of the Targaryen Valyrian steel swords are missing at this are point. Are missing, which is a lot. I mean, I think um, Arthur Dane's sword is also missing. Dawn is also missing, and that that sword is not made from Valyrian steel, as far as we know. Oh, it's I said it was. to be uh, is said to be fallen forged star. from the heart of a fallen star, and the blade That's is right. white, um, as That's opposed right. to other Valyrian steel blades, which are a dark gray. That's right. I forgot that. You're right. Um, of course, you're right. <laughs> um, you're like a computer for this stuff. <laughs> I don't know about that. Sorry, I'm not sure. But uh, this is actually, I'm glad you brought this up because it's, it, there's a really cool theory about, about Dark Sister. Um, and this will make you guys interested to read the books, too. Um, so if you, if you want to read yeah, the books after this, books. Yeah, if you want to read the books, send us your email. I'll give you a free book. Also, go to audibletrial.com slash G-O-M, and uh, you can sign up for a free trial of Audible for a month. No commitment to spend any money. It'll help us a little bit financially, and you'll get a free audio book. You can use that to get the first Game of Thrones book, and then I'll email you the second Game of Thrones book for free also because of another great policy that Audible has, which allows you to receive books as a gift from your friend as long as you haven't received one from that friend yet. So that's cool. Um, but there's this theory about Dark Sister in, in relation to the show and the books. So Arya mentions it here. I think we don't really hear much about it for the rest of the TV show. But as Kristen, as you were saying, the last known a holder of Dark Sister was Brendan Rivers, uh, also known as Blood Raven. And when he was banished and exiled to the Night's Watch, he inevitably went um, missing beyond the wall. And in, in the books, he is the Three-Eyed Raven. So they've changed that a little bit on the show. Um, but it's it's Blood, Ra- Blood Raven who's the Three Eyed Raven in the books under the tree. So Bran goes mm-hmm. up and he's working with Three Eyed Ra- with uh, with Blood Raven, Brendan Rivers, this Targaryen bastard, instead of whoever the Three Eyed Raven is on the TV show. Maybe Bran himself, or who knows. But um, in on the TV show, we know that Bran ends up with Littlefinger's Valyrian steel dagger and gives the dagger to. Arya, right? We just yes. saw that in season seven. Littlefinger yes, gives yes. him the dagger and he gives it to Arya. So, so you think that that's Dark Sister? I don't think that that dagger is Dark Sister. No, sorry. <laughs> I don't think that dagger is Dark Sister, but I think that in the books, Brendan Rivers, aka Blood Raven, took Dark Sister with him north of the wall. And I think that instead of Bran giving the cat's paw dagger to Arya. I think he in the books will end up with dark sister from the three eyed Raven North of the wall. And that he will bring dark sister down to Winterfell and give dark sister to his own dark sister, Arya. So I think that Arya will end up wielding this very blade that she's talking about here in the books in the future. so So cool. Right. And I think that, um, one or both of the Valyrian steel Targaryen swords will come back into the picture and be important in the uh, in terms of the end game. Like, how cool would it be I if John ended up with Blackfire somehow? What is he going to do with Longclaw? We could dual wield like Arthur Dane. 
Yeah, okay. <laughs> he needs a challenge. I mean, let's be honest. Yeah. He's pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's a pretty cool theory that I thought would, you know, I people would that really theory. dig. And that'll give you a little um, incentive to hop into the books and do that. Because, yeah, Hail Hydra, read the books. Hail Hydra, read the books. You guys will dig that. Free books, free books. Thanks, Audible. Thank you, Audible. So, yeah, that pretty much wraps up my number five. So my number three was actually Aria and Tywin, and um, we've pretty much really handled that. So um, I've, you know, mentioned kind of a couple of things that I thought for that scene. So, yeah, um, just, you know, that little history lesson and Tywin's thoughts on legacy and kind of the foreshadowing of the demise of his own house and family. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. How about your, that uh, covers it. how about your next one? Uh, so since we're switching things around, yeah, we'll say it's your, uh, number four. That was my number five. So this is my number four, my number four, um, was just kind of the theme of honor because, you know, this whole episode is called a man without honor. Right. right? <laughs> and, um, so I actually wanted to kind of like go a little deep with this. And I went on, you know, onto the, onto the Google and I just looked up honor just as the definition of honor. And what's funny is that dictionary.com had, um, uh, cause there's, you know, a dozen different definitions for honor, um, and you know what it can mean in di different situations. But, but one of them was, you know, honesty, fairness, or integrity in one's beliefs and actions. And then in parentheses, it says a man of honor. Huh. And so I thought I'm going to take that one. Nice. Um, so, and I also thought that that was very, that was very kind of descriptive of Jamie Lannister, especially what we know of him today. We know that, you know, with the exception of two instances that we have seen as viewers, um, he has acted as a knight. He has acted um, with honor. Okay, so just to, to clarify, let's uh, let's hear what the two instances are. Well, I was going to get there. Okay, okay, sorry. Um, <laughs> but but I'll do it now. No, no, it's fine. <laughs> the first one uh, was when he pushed Bran out the window. Definitely. Um, and the second one was actually in this episode when he killed Alton Lannister. Okay. Um, he did it in a completely self-serving purpose. He, um, he basically killed him in cold blood just so that he could escape. There was no other purpose for it at all. I mean, he killed the king. He killed the Mad King because the Mad King was going to kill everybody. And he killed him to save an entire people people don't know that and and you know if you're watching this show the first time you don't know that until his bath scene with brienne love that scene oh it's my favorite scene yeah it's, one of my favorite jamie scenes yeah, of the too. whole series one of just my favorite scenes of the whole series i think i agree well what's funny is that this particular scene with alton um with jamie lannister and alton lannister also one of my favorites well, this was, um, I can't say his name, Nikolai Kosterwaldo. Yep. Did I say that right? Yes. <laughs> um, this is his favorite scene he's ever acted in. Really? Period. Wow. Mm -hmm. It's a wonderful scene. You know what? It, it's wonderful because 
you can see kind of the sincerity that he loves what he does. Right. Right. Um, you know, he has a really fun quote that says, it's a good thing. I am what I am. I would be useless as anything else, which, you know, it goes to the foreshadowing of the fact that he gets his good sword hand cut off. Oh yeah. Uh, totally. Good call. And how he's just a mess. (laughs) Yeah. And you know, he, this is, this is the Jamie Lannister that, you know, before all that happened, I mean, he's very arrogant and pompous. He's gotten away with, you know, basically having a family with his sister, who is the queen and who has posed with his family, you know, to get to be the queen and his son is the king. And I'm getting all discombobulated. (laughs) So when I look at Jamie Lannister and I see that, you know, Catelyn is like, you are a man without honor. I just don't, even think that a little bit when it comes to this character um he does act without honor in this episode absolutely like you can't deny that but as a whole i think that he is one of the more honorable characters because he does he does things for other people and he gets to the point in the series where i think he does very little for himself um and he does more to help other people, especially his sister. Yeah. Um, right. I love the Jamie I character, mean, man. He finally helps himself and thinks for himself and acts for himself when he rides away from King's Landing in the last episode of last season. Definitely. You know, which is wonderful. You know, we're all like standing on our couches cheering for Jamie for finally cutting that cord with Cersei. It's funny that you mentioned that um, that's Nikolai Coster Waldo's favorite scene that he's ever acted in, because when I'm watching it and he has this line, you know, he was a painter, a painter who only used red. Red. I couldn't yeah. imagine being able to fight like that. Not back then. Mm-hmm. And to be able to help him do it, to be part of something so perfect. I don't need to explain how that felt. Not to you. You know, I, I'm right. thinking that when he's saying that line about painter who only used red, I'm just thinking as a viewer, like, wow, what a lucky, like, what a lucky guy to be, to have those lines as an actor. Oh yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. That's like a, those are, that's a scene to remember right there. You know, like that's, mm-hmm. that's some really like instant classic moment. Um, he was a painter, a painter who used only red, you know, that's fucking epic. So yeah, I can totally understand where he's coming from (laughs) amazing yeah well it also i mean as an actor you you can see he goes through an entire arc i mean he he's soft he's delicate he's funny and then he commits murder it's (laughs) such a sociopath i mean it's basically like here's my range in one scene yeah it's you can you can hire me (laughs) yeah it's it's amazing so if you go away from Jamie Lannister with the whole um, with the whole theme of honor, you see that um, in just a couple different instances in this in this episode, you have Jon Snow, who is hell bent on honor and loyalty to the Night's Watch. And all he wants is just this girl to stop talking. And all um, that she wants is another baby. Whoa. I think she, she's well. Okay. Oh, whoa. Oh, that she wants is another baby. She's gone tomorrow, boy. Sorry. Thank you for putting Ace of Base in my head. Again. Uh, yeah, I know. Oh, my gosh. Um, so you have, you know, you have John and 
and he's trying to just like be honorable like that's that's just i think his only mission until he finally realizes kind of what's going on with the wildlings is just honor 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 i'm a brother of the night's watch i know how to i know about women i do but i'm not gonna do anything about it you know (laughs) um and then you have theon who is completely losing any sense of honor that he's ever had or he was ever raised with by this stark family yeah, he had a leg and up I, on the honor side by growing up with the Starks, but then going back to the Greyjoys just takes it all away. He was with Balon Greyjoy for like 10 minutes and everything went away. That's how corrosive they are. Oh, gosh. Salt, man. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think in this episode, Theon finally loses all honor. Um, you know, it was... It, Last week's episode with him killing Sir Roderick. Thank you, Sir Roderick. <laughs> so Theon was kind of unraveling last week, right? I mean, when he finally kicked off Sir Roderick's head, you knew, okay, this guy has gone off the rails. But, you know, maybe you could come back from that a little bit. But then he he kills and burns two boys and two even boys before that there's signs of it this episode where he's you know there he's off in the woods with with maester lewin hunting <laughs> and he uh, what does he say to him don't look so grim it's all just a game oh yeah a game of thrones oh mm-hmm. um but yeah that at that point you're just like what the fuck theon like you're fucked in the head like you're broken man yeah and then he you know sees the walnuts and he devises some plan and you know just i i I couldn't imagine feeling like i needed to prove myself so badly that i had to kill and burn beyond all recognition two small children and then on the other side of the coin you have jorah and jorah has been dishonorable to um Daenerys quietly um and nobody really knows that yet except for wow what a crazy Um, scene that was but he is trying to quietly restore his honor um by being everything that he possibly can be to Daenerys at this point he comes back after you know wherever he's been oh getting the ship and um or trying to get a ship failing to get a ship but um, I think that he rushed back even before he had the like completely um, exhausted all of his options just because he had heard. Oh yeah, what when happened. he heard about the dragons being gone. Yeah. Um. So you know, you see, you see these many different levels of honor, kind of throughout the entire scene. And I mean, really, you could say you can even end the episode by saying, "Who is the man without honor in this episode?" Is it? You know, John, who is being tempted by uh, Ygritte, which he eventually succumbs to. Is it Theon as he hoists <laughs> these burning bodies up, you know, at Winterfell? Great. Is it Jorah, who has been this man um, who hasn't been the most loyal to his Khaleesi, who is now trying to um, um, absolve himself of that with, with whatever he does from this 
Momonon, or is it Jamie, who is on the surface a man without honor, but when you know him a little bit better and you come to know who he is and why he is where he is, he is a very honorable knight. Or so you could even throw Tywin in there too, as he orders villages oh, to be absolutely. burned. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, him talking about legacy and carrying his family with as far as he's gotten to this point, you know, only to see that, you know, his dumbass family is ruining everything. <laughs> or you can throw in the hound. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point, too. You know, and what, what Sansa says to him this episode. And what he's doing by saving Sansa and protecting her. But at the same time, he has to be, you know, a king's guard doing all these hateful things. And um, while we're talking about Sansa, I think that Sophie Turner's performance uh, was great in this episode too with her interactions with the Hound. And I have written down somewhere in my notes that um, with every every rewatch, I think I appreciate uh, Sansa, the, the Sansa character more. I would agree with that. I would absolutely agree with that. I, um, I feel the same way. Sansa and Varys... Nice. Yeah, I love varies. Sorry, Patrick. <laughs> I like varies. <laughs> there is a um, a moment where we had the the warlock and the manipulator, Piat Pri and Zaro Zoandoxis formulating their coup and taking over Karth. Um, and I was thinking about those two and that pair, sort of mirroring Baelish and Varys to some extent. Baelish, the manipulator and schemer, sort of the way that Zaro was in this in this um, coup d'etat, and Varys being sort of like the sneaky, like um, he he hates magic, so it's not like a perfect parallel, but sort of like the um, the man behind man in the shadows type thing with the I hooded love robe. That. They're um, like the alternate sort universe. Of <laughs> yeah, sort of paralleling Pyatpri. Yeah, so I thought that was pretty funny. Oh, I love that. I love that. I never put that together. That's wonderful. Well, it, it, yeah, I mean, it's it's not really anything. I just thought I had this episode. No, I think you got through, something there. Funny. Because Daenerys eventually has to deal with, you know, kind of a varies. Well, she has to deal with varies. She hasn't. Ha she never met Baelish, did she? No. Oh man, that would have been a great. She would have roasted his yeah, ass. Yeah, oh man, that would have been no awesome. Question. I love it. Baelish isn't even in the episode, still bringing him up. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Because the thing about Varys, he's like, he's got people skills, you know, and can at least come off as not a psychopath. Mm -hmm. So he can, he has a little wiggle room with the ability to like work with Danny a little bit. No fucking way would Danny ever put up with any of Baelish's bullshit. Nah, she would have had Drogon eat him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah definitely so anyways that's what i have for honor how about you nice is... that was a great uh great point thank you what's your number four my number four is john's learning curve so <laughs> john... <laughs> sorry i went real dirty there for a second <laughs> <laughs> no, i also have another point john's ongoing seduction which that we can get dirty for that section. Perfect. But uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there are, is dirty stuff with his learning curve as well, I guess. Um, but yeah, that's yet to come. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, um, 
things sort of get a little intense between John and Ygritte as they're discussing whose land it is up there and who's at fault. Is it the, the Southerners who built the wall or is it the wildlings who routinely in, invade the North? Is it the, is it, is John at fault for having invaded their territory now? And it sort of comes to a head and they're arguing over whose land is it and whose ancestors are from where. And it comes out that John says that, you know, his, his father told him that, He's from the north and that there he's got the blood of the first men who are from this play, this area. And so that that's like adds to how um, he told someone a couple episodes ago that he's of the north. Remember when he told mm-hmm. Corin that? Yeah. So this is sort of like expounds on that, revealing that he is blood of the first men. And um, so it, when he says that, you know, like my ancestors lived here, too. You know, and she's like, so why are you fighting us? Yeah. Like, what the fuck? Um, we're essentially, like, from the same clan. And so I think this is a pivotal moment for John's philosophical development. Um, he entered the, the Night's Watch at first with a certain outlook on the world and his place in it and what's right and wrong and the way he viewed people and him being not highborn per se, but growing up in a castle and dealing with these you know, lowborn folks and sort of looking down on them and then coming to learn, see them as his peers. And the same th- sort of things happening here with the wildlings that they're trained to that, you know, the highborns are up here, the, the lowborns are down here. And then below that is the wildlings. Mm-hmm. And we saw that with like Randall Tarley's uh, Randall Tarley's perspective mm-hmm. when they're at dinner with Sam and everything. And you brought a wildling to dinner and, and all that. Um, so I think this is like I said, a big moment for John um, as he sort of expands his mindset and and sort of navigates his compass of morality, determining these revelations that will in turn impact the way that he decides to lead the North by uniting the wildlings with the the North folk and the Seven Kingdoms and banding together as humans protecting the realm, considering wildlings members of the realms of men, you know, mm-hmm. um, as so that they deserve to be protected under the vows of the Night's Watch. This is where that that thought train sort of begins for Jon Snow um, as he meets a wildling who he falls for and it humanizes the concept of wildlings for Jon Snow and makes him realize that they are that people with rights too who deserve to be protected and integrated and yeah that's basically my my entire point summed up is that John is his learning curve is beginning to accelerate at this point that's interesting that you say um, that um, Ygritte uh, humanizes the wildlings for him because up until that point you're right you know he's been uh, to Craster's keep and he was a abominable man and he couldn't even take the time to look at any of these wives and daughters of his um you know Sam came up with Gillian is like we have to help her and he's like what what the fuck are you doing are you stupid so I think that when you say that the wildlings are now humanized for him that that's kind of an important point right the future of the realm depends on this scene, essentially. Yeah, I think I, I think you're right. I, I I took that scene personally as um as these two sides that hate each other and they have no idea why. 
you know people are like right. <laughs> it's like romeo and juliet right it's like i was just thinking that too two yeah. houses it's just, yeah, divided they have no idea why all they know is that they hate each other that's it and that that is another example of of um george rr R. martin encrypting like famous mythological archetypes in and literature uh like famous tropes from literature into this to make it like a, a classical masterpiece mm-hmm. like I we never I've I never really noticed the whole Romeo Juliet aspect of this, but uh, yeah, that's totally what's going on here. So yeah, good catch. Yeah, I I um I love those two together, man. I wish that they could have had more time together. I I wish that for a lot of these characters, especially with how they are now in respect to how they used to be. Um, it would just be right. so interesting to see them all together. Maybe when the Night King dies, everybody lives again. Yeah, yeah, maybe uh or imagine imagine Drogo and Danny, like season seven Danny with season one Drogo. That would be so epic. <laughs> right. That would be so epic. Oh, I saw a picture, um, sidebar. I saw a picture of a pi- of um Jason Momoa and Kit Harrington, like arm in arm together. <laughs> Kit is tiny, huh? He's, he's tiny, looks like a little hipster called Drogo. <laughs> like Jason Momoa is basic, you know, human perfection. And uh and the meme says, you know, that moment when you meet your your uh your girlfriend's ex. Girlfriend's or ex. Like <laughs> I just thought it was I laughed out loud. It's hilarious. I'll post it to uh either our Twitter page or something like that. Okay, good. Yeah, do it. So yeah, that Classic. was a great a great number four for you. Thanks. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> what's uh what's your number three? Uh my number three is Theon's Unraveling. Ooh. So nice. So we've we've touched on Theon a little bit. Um he has so y- it's it's interesting because earlier you talked about what did he say to um Maester Lewin? Don't look so grim. It's all just a game. Oh yeah, it's all just a game. Okay. So then he talks about um he talks about I'm looking at spending the rest of my life being treated like a fool and a eunuch by my and own people. Then he starts talking about um he dis- and beating the hounds until they do what they're supposed to do, right? And then right after that, he says it's better to be cruel than weak. So he goes through this entire um, monologue, this little speech, mini monologue to to Maester Lewin about everything that Ramsay is and everything that is about to happen to him. Oh, snap. You know what I mean? So it's, you know... Yeah, the hounds, Ramsay... Damn. Yeah, because I only noticed it when when I watched it a couple days ago. I noticed him saying, you know, discussing being a eunuch and a fool. But then he starts talking about beating the hounds. He starts talking about, oh, it's just a game, and we're just hunting. And like Ramsey hunting his female prey right. or male prey, well, like out in the woods with the dog hunts and everything. Right, you know. And he yeah, this scene, whole scene, they're that's what they're doing. They're using dogs to hunt the kids, which is exactly what Ramsey does to Theon coming up. Yeah, so I mean, Theon kind of gets everything that he had coming to him does. he really um it's funny actually because the uh, the Greyjoy words right you know what they we are do not so no 
Yeah, he's totally yeah. sowing his seeds of his own destruction right now. Literally, he reaps exactly what he sows right here. Oh my gosh! And and the That's whole hilarious. and he's so arrogant and he's so gross. And but he's got those crazy Ramsey eyes. I mean, I I watched the scene right before we started recording, and um, and all you see is the crazy. If you were to take Theon's eyes in this scene and line them up with Ramsey eyes when he's shaking the little sausage wiener at him. I'm pretty sure <laughs> they would be the same eyes. It's hilarious. So <laughs> Ramsey. Oh gosh. I you know, what sucks is that he's coming. He's coming soon, man. <laughs> yeah, he's gonna yes. make Joffrey look like a, you know, spoiled little brat. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, is it next episode that we get Ramsey, the Prince of Winterfell? Is it? I thought maybe we had one more. Does he show up I in season we'll two? Find out. Yeah, I guess we will find out. Theon gets gets his shit kicked in this season, right? Oh, I thought it was in he season three. He takes over Winterfell and then immediately, like, oh, because first Yara has to show up. True. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> no, we will see. Yeah. So anyways, um, I just thought that it's a it's a little like just a little point. It's not like some big all encompassing like let's talk about honor for 10 minutes. But, you know, I just feel like it was worth noting that Theon basically describes his captor and everything that's about to happen to him in one yeah. maniacal speech to Maester Lewin. He goes from the hunter to the hunted mm -hmm. real quick, real quick. Yeah, it's, it's hard great. to feel bad for him, but we're going to feel bad yeah, for him. Is. Yeah, <laughs> it'll yeah, happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's going to be horrible. Uh, so that's uh, wraps up your number yeah. three. All right. Short and sweet. So now we can get uh, a little dirty with uh, my number three, John's ongoing seduction. You know nothing, John Snow. <laughs> we get it for the first time this episode. Yeah. Uh, that's great. And John almost gets it too for the first time this episode. Um, she was ready so to drop trowel, man. <laughs> <laughs> she, she was. So it starts off with John and Igrit waking up. And she's like, What did she say to him? Like, what did you like pull your dagger out or something? Yeah, did you pull <laughs> okay. a dagger in my back in the night? <laughs> and he's so embarrassed. It's hilarious. And she's like, "What's the matter? It can't be the first time you've it can't be the first time you've pressed your bone against a woman's <laughs> arse." <laughs> and he's like, "Let's move." And she realizes, "Oh, it is the first time. How old are you, boy?" And he's like, "I'm a man of the Night's Watch." <laughs> Just hilarious. And she's like, almost seems sad when she realizes you're a boy who's never been with a girl. Um, but she quickly, you know, starts being the uh, playful antagonist again, saying, don't your stones start to hurt if your bone never gets? And he cuts her off. I loved that. <laughs> don't call them that. Do you use <laughs> your hands? <laughs> he's such a mopey bastard. Yeah. yeah, it's so funny. Don't call him that. She's like, what? Stones are bone. <laughs> Neither. Both. Move. <laughs> He's so off his game. <laughs> it's all frustrated. And it cuts to them walking along, and she's still at it, just, you know, pecking at him. I heard they get all swollen and bruised if you don't use them. Of course, maybe that's just what the lads say when they want me feeling sorry for them. <laughs> As if I'd feel sorry for them. <laughs> um, 
And then she goes on to ask him, there's no girl crows, which is funny. And he's like, no. So the lads do it with each other then? <laughs> he's like, no. <laughs> so what do you have, sheep at the wall then? <laughs> he's like, no. <laughs> then, yeah, okay, use your hand. No wonder you're such a mopey bastard. I know. And they're sort of like exploring this like um, glacial terrain at this time, which is just gorgeous. Uh, these northern areas where they're filming are just magnificent it was Iceland, looking. right? I don't know. Um, it looks like it's a, like would be Iceland. Um, but yeah, it's pretty epic. Pretty awesome. Like the dark blue ice and everything. Mm, beautiful. Um, so she tells, uh, you know, they're, they're going on about, she's threatening to like claim that he raped her basically. And, um, that she didn't think she'd want to, but then, you know, she was in, she couldn't resist. And, and he's like, you know, it didn't happen. None of that happened. And she's like, you know, it's your word against mine. And since you can't talk about it without blushing, you know, we might as well just do it. And he's like, what, right here in the muck, which I thought was a funny line <laughs> just cause muck is a funny word. <laughs> She's like, oh, it'll be real nice. <laughs> I'll keep you warm, uh-huh. Crow. You know? And um, so that was really funny. And then he has to sort of grab Longclaw to make her back off from her seduction attempts. Um, and she's like, gods, you're dull. Which is really funny. And they do have really great chemistry together. Yeah, thank goodness they're getting married. Yeah, thank goodness it's going to delay season nine. <laughs> Filming for season nine. Eight. Eight, yeah, sorry. I wish Durf. there was going to be a season nine. Yeah, tell me about it. Um, so then she ends up yanking the rope and making a run for it, and it, it ends up with John being totally surrounded. But yeah, I just thought it was funny, like the ongoing seduction of John and how he's, you know, it's it's escalating. <laughs> right. So I think that she knew that they were being tracked by the wildlings. And she knew that to throw him off of his game was to just keep getting under his skin about this. Because she knew right uh, she knew right when to run, you know, after yeah, she kind did. of throwing him off and throwing him off and throwing him off. And he was he was so in his head about what she was saying that and so unfamiliar with the terrain i mean they were walking in circles right (laughs) john is unfamiliar with the physical and emotional terrain and yeah i don't know if they're walking in circles probably and um you know i think that he got himself caught just by not paying attention yeah like you were saying he's a newbie Mm -hmm. he's a a, you know new jack green as summer grass (laughs) that's pretty funny yeah that that pretty much wraps up my number three oh cool I love John and Egret. Yeah, me too. Fire and Ice. Yeah. Fire and Ice version one. <laughs> it's, they're the uh, the beta version. <laughs> yeah, the beta. Yeah, the beta yeah. <laughs> they're even alpha version, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> the, the... Or no, I guess the alpha version would be Rhaegar and Lyanna. Yes. Look at you. Look at you go. <laughs> And all of that has John involved. That's nice. Yeah. So what's your number two? My number two, as I go back to my notes, it was John and Ygritte. Oh, perfect. Yeah. So I think we've talked about them enough. What's your number two? 
My number two is the lion and the smaller lion, which was just that whole talk with uh, or that conversation between Jamie and Sir Jamie and Sir Alton before uh, Jamie kills him. And uh, just I love that scene. It's a legendary scene. I'm right right there with Nikolai Coster Waldo on that. Um, I just thought there's lots of good stuff that happens here. So one funny part was uh, Jamie asking him. Who's your mother again? Which Lannister? That Lannister. Like Cinda Lannister. Yeah, and like like I mentioned um, previously, he's at, he's like, is that the fat one? And Al- Alton's like, well, I mean, I guess you could you you could say that recently she's put on a few, and he kind of cuts her off. He's like, no, 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 no. You would know. There's only one fat Lannister, and you'd know <laughs> if she was your mother. You know, if she was your mother, you'd know it. So that was really funny, and then I liked that. Alton had this memory. It's the best day in his life. And it was when he squired for Jamie at the tournament at Willem Frey's wedding. And Jamie doesn't even remember going at first, you know, which is hilarious how like this, the event was like either significant or completely non-significant, depending on your perspective, mm-hmm. uh, where you're coming from. I forgot to mention this during the show, and this is why I used this clip for the intro of the episode, but it's funny because um, Alton Lannister here is talking about how it was the best day of his life, and he'll remember it until until he dies, and then he dies a couple minutes later after that, so I thought that was pretty funny. Back to the show. Um, and yeah, I just, just a cool, really cool scene. We talked a little bit about it, but, you know, he... Jamie's squire had gotten so wasted that he'd thrown up his on his own horse on the way to this tournament. Tyrion's doing... Um, Oh yeah, yeah, of course. You know <laughs> that imp can drink, uh, drink like a, a full man for sure. He's got a high tolerance. Um, so Sir Alton stepped up to squire, even though he'd never squired before, and his father was furious, um, considering they're, you know, they're a, a, a lesser branch of the family Lannister. You, you could say he was afraid that Alton would embarrass embarrass their family in front of the family, mm-hmm. you know, like the main Lannister branch. So I thought that was kind of cool that they're. That they're like discussing like these interfamily dynamics, sort of, and giving us an inner feeling of how other branches feel. And you know, I just thought it was kind of neat. And so Jamie is like buttering him up, probably knowing what his plan is to come, you know, <laughs> indulging him a little bit, mm-hmm. making him feel cool and whatnot. And he's like, You didn't, though. You, you know, you didn't embarrass the family. You knew when you were needed and when to go away. It's a rare talent, you know, and he's <laughs> and uh, Alton like continues to scooch a little closer, like bit by bit until he's like right up next to him and he's fanboying over Jamie and his helmet and his horse and the rake lines in the dirt and, uh, at the list and where the sun was in the sky when he unhorsed Balon Swan and how it was the best day in his life. And afterwards, he couldn't bear to tell his family like to go back and sit at a, t- at a table so far away from the center of the feast and. And he couldn't, you know, his, he could never tell his family what it was like. <clears throat> and Jamie's like, I understand completely. You know, and he kind of snaps, how could you? And apologizes, which was kind of funny. You know, I thought that was a cool little dynamic there. And then, um, yeah, it turns out that he is, had squired for Barristan Selmy, as we mentioned before. And Barristan is like the man. He's Batman, mm-hmm. as Sir Patrick <laughs> he says. He is Batman. Very totally good. Totally is. Infiltrating the uh, that whole... Um, town to f- to free the captive Ares, uh, Mad King Ares, which is insane, totally Bruce Wayne style stealth infiltration. Mm-hmm. Um, and he goes on, you know, the whole you know painter who used just red and that whole thing. 
and um, he has a moment where he is talking about how he'd you know thought about escaping. And he had said that you know he Jamie he's not suited for being a prisoner. Although Ned Stark, I bet he was a good prisoner, but not me, you know. Uh, so he. Good prisoners breed good jailers, I guess, um, which he says, which is funny because there's no way out. And then he sort of tricks um, Alton into kind of getting close. And at least he made his last few minutes memorable, too. Not that he'll ever have the chance to remember them. Killed by Jamie <laughs> Lannister. Yeah, k- killed by the Kingslayer, who's now also a Kinslayer. Kinslayer. I, I put that down. Kinslayer and Kingslayer. Look at, look at that. Nice. Yeah, good call. You just triggered that in my mind. I didn't even write that down. Um, but, uh, yeah, I liked how also, you know, Jamie bashes the guy's head in and then the, the guard enters and Jamie's kind of just like slumped against the pole and, uh, Alden's corpse. It's, I mean, it's not funny. It's horrible, but twitching. it's twitching. It was twitching. Yeah. Um, I remember going to, uh, my dad's job at Pfizer when I was little and you'd have to like sacrifice test like lab mice and oh uh, he'd gosh. use like a little guillotine and cut their heads <gasps> off. And oh my gosh. Little three bladed guillotine. I know it's horrible. And uh, they would twitch like that. So it's totally realistic. Oh my gosh. I hate that story. Yeah. <laughs> I may or may not include that, but it's oh, fucked I up. I hate that story. <laughs> yeah, it's super fucked. So yeah. And then Jamie, you know, ends up strangling that guard too, who it turns out is Rickard Karstark's son, which is why he's so pissed at Jamie. Um, after the ends up being captured. Um, but yeah, he takes that dude's keys, that, that guard, his keys, and he rolls out. And that's uh, my number two. That was a good one. Yeah, I, you know what, that, that was a great scene. I, oh man, that twitching, man, it got me. Yeah, I, it's hardcore, right? Yeah, well, I don't know if that was a director's decision or an actor's decision, but, oh gosh, it was effective. Yeah, it's so brutal. Yeah. Super brutal. Yeah, I, you know, it's one of those scenes where you just, you hate Jamie Lannister so much, but you can't help but like the guy for like half the scene. Yeah. He's so charismatic and understanding, and then he just murders a bitch. I <laughs> just murdered he's him. His cousin. He's like, yeah, you're going to have to die. Yeah. <laughs> just looks at him. You, there is a way you can help. Anything. You just have to do one thing. Tell me, tell me, please, anything. You just have to die. Oh. There's a beautiful moment where they sort of like make eye contact and then Jamie, boom, headbutts him and just bashes him in. Whew. Gnarly. Yeah, totally. Rule. <laughs> yeah, big time. Oh, Jamie Lannister. Love ya. Like we mentioned last week, Audible is giving listeners of Game of Microphones the opportunity to receive A Game of Thrones, the first book of A Song of Ice and Fire, or any of their other 180,000 titles completely free of charge. Just sign up for a free month trial of their service by using our affiliate link so they know we sent you, and you can pick any book you want for free. I recommend choosing book one of A Song of Ice and Fire, or whatever the next book is that you need to read in that series. And then with another of Audible's great policies, which allows you to receive a free book as a gift from a friend, as long as you haven't received one from that friend before, we can email you the next book in the series as well. So this way, you get a free trial of audible.com, which includes one free audiobook, and then we get to email you the next book in the Song of Ice and Fire series as well. So you can get two free audiobooks without committing to spend a dime, and Audible rewards us just for sending you their way to try their service. 
That's a win-win for everybody. Just go to www.audibletrial.com G-O-M. That's www.audibletrial.com G-O-M, as in Game of Microphones. Now back to the show. Yep. So what do you got for number one? My number one is Cersei. Ew. So, ew. Ew. <laughs> ew. 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 <laughs> Cersei is ew. Um, totally. Actually, it's uh, Cersei just being honest. Um, you know, you see her two different times in this episode, and she's very honest. She's very quiet um, with Sansa and with Tyrion, right? Uh, so first with Sansa, you know, that whole sequence with Sansa getting... Um, her period and Shay just going right, batshit crazy for her. Um, yeah. You know, all of that panic. Finally, you, you know, we see that, okay, Cersei has been told about what has happened uh, with Sansa. And I still, I wonder because that handmaiden that walked into that room, that's the same handmaiden the that shows up. In season seven. And she's always mimicking uh, Cersei's hairstyle, right? Yeah. And she was the one that saw uh, Cersei and Jamie together in bed that, that morning. Right. After she's like, I don't care. We can just be public. Right. Um, I'm the fucking queen, ho. Well, especially with her, apparently, because she's super loyal. So, you know, while we did see the hound looking over the mattress, you can't help but think, well, maybe it was a handmaiden, you know? Yeah. So you don't really know. But... Um, I loved how we got to see um, Shay's blade too. Yeah, because we did. We get. We got that scene where it's like Chekhov's gun, right? Where she like pulls up her skirt and she's like, "No one would hurt me." I'm always prepared. Or did that happen yet? No. Yeah, she said it. She showed um, Tyrion her blade to say that she oh. could that she could handle herself, and she was always always ready and always prepared. Basically. Okay. Good. Okay. Cool. But, Thanks. Yeah. No worries. Um. So, so with Cersei, um, you know, you, you get kind of this counsel from, from her to Sansa. And what's great is that you can see because Jon, uh, Snow in this past season says to Sansa, you sound as if you admire her and you can see in this scene why Sansa would admire her because she got some really, really great counsel and advice from her um that i would think later would be invaluable especially with what sansa has had to go through um to get to where she is now as a character um so and we get insight into cersei's mindset too yeah the process yeah you do and and you wonder or i i was wondering if she was being this kind and gentle with Sansa because she didn't have Marcella anymore. And so mm, this is substitute daughter. Yeah. So now she's like, I want to give this knowledge to somebody. And if you're going to be marrying my son, I might as well give it to you. And she was married to somebody that she didn't love. And she, um, she had to do her duty. So she sympathizes with Sansa on that level. And she knows that we find out later, uh, with Tyrion, that she knows what Sansa is marrying. She knows that her son right. is horrible. But he enjoys cruelty. Mm-hmm. And so when she says, you know, the more people you love, the weaker you are, 
you know, don't love anybody except your children because as a mother, you can't help that. Yeah. She says you may never love the king, but you'll love his children. Yeah. You know, your children, which is a good line, too. Mm -hmm. Because she never loved Robert or maybe she did, but she kind of play loved him. I mean, she loved him like, oh, he's going to be the king and I'm going to be the queen, you know? Yeah. Um, And loving Jamie has done nothing but hurt her, you know? Um, She's living this huge lie and... Um, if anybody ever found out, it would be, it would bring down the entire family and the entire kingdom. You know, she'd lose everything that she's, you know, personally sacrificed for. Yeah. Um, so you kind of see a lot of that reflection that she's giving to Sansa, which I really, really loved seeing. And, and Sansa really took it all in and she seemed genuinely surprised that you know robert wasn't there at the births and that jamie yeah, was, that was crazy. there i forgot about that mm-hmm. it's like he knew they weren't his um and then later we see one of my favorite scenes um in probably the whole season and that's with cersei and Tyrion. um and yeah really good scene oh, too oh my gosh they're so honest with each other and you would think that in another life that maybe they would have loved each other um, as brother and sister. sister. Yeah. Yeah. And especially Tyrion, as he makes repeated um, gestures of support to Cersei, who's struggling with her, her situation and the guilt of incest. I was surprised. Yeah. That she admitted that to Tyrion at all. She laid Um, it all out. Yeah. uh, You can tell Tyrion's sort of taken aback by that. I wonder if Tyrion will use that against her in the future. But despite how horribly she's consistently treated him throughout his life, he steps forward to to support her and is there for her when she needs it, which is something that is not the case in the reverse scenario. Um, no, she can't wait all. to take him down. Right. So um, it just shows to it's just gives another example of like what a good guy Tyrion is. You know, he's the only like. Lannister sibling who will like unconditionally actually be there for his family. <laughs> well, and you get you get that feeling again when they're together again um, in the season finale of season seven, when he realizes that she's pregnant, whatever. Um, yeah. You know his whole his whole strategy changes. You know, right? Because he he loves. I mean, he does love his family i mean no matter what cersei has done to him you know if they're if she's pregnant he that's his family there's no way that he's going to destroy that if he can help it um which is yep uh, probably going to be his downfall could be Um, hopefully not yeah me too but um Bran will tell him, no, 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 you're really a Targaryen. Don't worry about them. They're only half siblings. Let me show you. I'm the ghost of Christmas past. Yeah, and I know, actually, Sir Patrick um, mentions clues in this episode that the that Cersei and Jaime are actually potentially Targaryens. So we'll get to that later on. Yeah, I've heard that, too. I've heard that theory. Yeah, I think that in the, the world of Ice and Fire, the, the that book, it puts... Joanna Lannister at Casterly Rock at the time of Jamie and Cersei's conception, mm-hmm. at which point 
the Mad King was supposed to be at King's Landing, so it doesn't seem like it was possible for her to be impregnated by Mad King Ares. But Tyrion potentially could be, according to the timeline from the World of Ice and Fire. I I completely agree that I think Tyrion is a Targaryen, but that that's something we can talk about later. Sure. We're discussing... Um, issuing some bonus episodes where we just read essays about this stuff, right? Yeah. So we can read the Tyrion Targaryen essay. I would love to talk about the Tyrion Targaryen concept. I, I, I love, I love all that crazy stuff. Yeah. We can read the definitive essay, which she might not have read. It's amazing. It's all, I, I would love to, that would be awesome. Um, so anyways, yeah, this, this, um, this was a very honest and quiet episode for Cersei, and I think that we learn a lot about her. Um, and I think that we also learn how lonely and isolated she is right now because she's turning to Tyrion, and she's doubting herself. And Yeah, if she's turning to Tyrion, she's got nobody. <laughs> and they, he goes to touch her, and she wants to be touched. She, wants, she, she probably hasn't been hugged in months who knows yeah you know she and and uh he he steps up but he doesn't i don't think he actually makes the movement to touch her he just steps up like he's there to support her but he doesn't reach out to touch her because i think he realizes that would like push the boundary too far you know break this spell but they look at each other they look at each other with this panic in their eyes because they do feel close but they know that it's it's just unnatural for the two of them um, yeah, it's it's crazy. Mm-hmm. It's really like the depth of like the subtlety of what's happening in this scene in context of the whole story is crazy. I agree. So I, I just loved um, I loved Cersei in this episode. I mean, I hate her. I hate her. But man, do I love her. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so she admits a she admits that that she's committed incest with Jamie. You know, she's wondering if Joffrey's insanity is the price uh, that, that they're paying for their sins, the incest. And so she, um, you know, Tyrion, even though he probably is against incest steps up to just to comfort her by saying, you know, the Targaryens and she steps in wed brother and sister for hundreds of years. I know, you know, that's what Jamie and I would say to each other in our moments of doubt. That's like the moment where she confirms it like hands down. And uh, it's what I told Ned Stark when he was stupid enough to confront me. And Tyrion doesn't respond to that because he's like, oh, my God, like, this is crazy. Like, he's realizing what's happening. He's just sitting there going, what do I do? What do I do? (laughs) The machinations, the behind the scenes stuff that he was unaware of is just like blowing his mind. And so she uh, she says, half the Tar- Targaryens went mad, didn't they? What's the saying? Every time a Targaryen is born, the gods flip a coin. <laughs> you know, which we see personified with um, Viserys and Daenerys, brother and sister. Yes. The two surviving siblings of House uh, Targaryen, one insane, one, you know, mostly sane, <laughs> potentially a little insane. Waiting to see what um, you're going to say to that. Uh, obviously, there are two different sides of the coin, for sure. Um, <laughs> you know, Viserys is cut from some burnt fabric a little bit. A little bit. Yeah, whereas Daenerys is unburnt, obviously. Um, but Tyr- Tyrion continues to comfort her. Well, you've beaten the odds. You know, Tommen and Marcella are good, decent children, both of them. 
he's really trying to be there for her and comfort her. You know, two out of the three kids are good. You know, that's pretty good odds mm-hmm. uh, for this game yeah, of incest roulette. Terrible, like truly yeah, it's real bad. terrible. Yeah, um, and she. It's interesting. He's he. That's when she sort of like starts to cry, and he steps forward in a gesture of support, um, having her back despite everything that she's done. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, there's a moment before that though where you know Tyrion says the boy is more Robert than Jamie, like trying to like divert from the incest conversation. I think because um, he doesn't think that she'll admit it, so he's trying to play it off. Because she she says to him, um, he looks like Jamie, and then it, there's a moment where like her face like has a look of panic and she sort of realizes what she just said mm-hmm. and she changes it and says in a certain light um, so that's when Tyrion kind of tries to divert it without to force to not force her to admit it essentially and she steers into the skid yeah she goes right into it which is interesting but uh, she she mentions that Robert was a drunken fool but he didn't enjoy cruelty so she can recognize that Joffrey is a psychopath and that he, this is psychopathy. And so does that mean that she feels that she's exempt from being a psychopath herself? Because no. she definitely shows certain traits of psychopathy. I think she's a complete psychopath. Okay, so here we go. Does this like does this imply that she does not enjoy cruelty is what I also have in my notes. And I, this is where my theory comes in. I think that she may be what is called a secondary psychopath and that's someone who's induced into psychopathic behavior by environmental stresses essentially like Dexter on the TV show Dexter I think that he's a secondary psychopath um, which is sort of illustrated as he reverts from psychopathy into more normal human behavior as the series progresses you know he was caused to be a psychopath by the trauma of his mother's murder in front of him mm-hmm. I think that various things have contributed to Cersei's um, trend towards psychopathy. We know that she was pinching little Tyrion's cock when he was a baby, um, when she was little, and I think that that, like, feeling no emotion about it, you know, when the Red Viper came to visit Casterly Rock and they wanted to show him the monster that was born, Tyrion, you know, the the dwarf beast, and um, I think that she was induced into psychopathic. Uh, behavior towards Tyrion here because of the traumatic experience of Tyrion having you know unintentionally res- um, played a part in his her mother's death in his birth so that traumatized her induced psychopathic behavior um, in a secondary psychopathic sort of way and then she you know she's um, she goes through all this stuff where the guy that she's supposed to marry is killed and she marries Robert who traumatizes her by saying Liana's name on their wedding night and treats her badly and all this stuff is just pushing her into psychopathic mind state and behaviors. Um, so I think that Cersei would qualify as what they call a secondary psychopath, whereas Tom and Ert, sorry, whereas Joffrey is born bad, basically, and he's a full-fledged um, psychopath, primary psychopath. Joffrey. Yeah, yeah totally. Absolutely. I, yeah, okay. I would, I, now I want to just read up on it, but from what you've said so far, I would agree with that. Although I do think that she is um, off the deep end now. Oh yeah, definitely. Now she's been pushed farther and farther into it with the deaths of her children and everything like that. Yeah, the shadow has consumed her. Yeah, absolutely. Good, good call. Referencing the, uh, the archetype of the shadow that we discussed a couple weeks ago with Kyburn. That was, that was such a good article. Um, yeah, good good poll there. Thanks. 
Yeah. So anyways, that was my number one was just Cersei and just everything that we learn from her, everything we learn about her, how she affected Sansa in the long run, how that she, um, her complicated relationship with Tyrion. Nice. Just very beautifully, beautifully done by Lena Hetty. Yeah. By both of them. A lot of good stuff there. Mm-hmm. A lot to chew on. So my number one is so many vows and the hint of of potential for a beginning of a humanization of Jamie Lannister. Yay. <laughs> um, so the Bannermen are fighting in Rob's camp about um, trying to wanting to kill Jamie, basically. And, uh, you know, Rob is away and he's off at the crag trying to negotiate. And Rickard Karstark wants to axe Jamie right now. And Kat is saying, no, they need to wait for Rob because he's the king and he's Jamie's his prisoner. You know, they don't have the authority to kill him. They're just subordinates here. Mm-hmm. So it starts with Kat and Brienne are in the tent, though, remember? And the, the guy sticks his head in the tent and is asking something and Brienne stops her. And she he calls Brienne woman. And then he ends up she ends up calling him man. Remember that? Which is pretty funny. And yes. he apologizes. <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> Yeah, and so there's like mob-like conditions outside as Jamie is being pushed around and hit and dragged beyond a horse on a chain after he's captured, because um, he does end up escaping temporarily after he kills his cousin. So she ends up, it's, it's great, uh, they're, they're sort of confronting, confronted by um, Rickard Karstark there, and so Kat stops Rickard from killing Sir Jamie, and um, you know, as Rickard's getting a little out of hand there and uh brienne has a great moment where she like rips her swords upward her sword upwards real quick and says threatening my lady is an act of treason and she just seems like a freaking like robot that's a captain phasma moment i love her right she's awesome t2000 my one of my favorite lines is jamie going is that a woman (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's such a great moment too. We'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Um, so funny. So, uh, oh, sorry, I got discombobulated here. Ah, you so said Rickard it too. Is all discombobulated. Yeah, I said it like an hour ago. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so Rickard is all pissed, and and he says that Rob is at the crag, but not to negotiate. He took that foreign bitch with her <laughs> with him, talking about Talisa. Mm-hmm. And that's what made Brienne kind of freak out. And so um, Jamie, after Rickard walks away, thanks Catelyn for fighting in his defense. And she is all mad and tells him to bring him to the stockades and bind him with every chain they can find, which is funny. And he continues to taunt her and she says, and gag him! (laughs) Gag his ass, which is great. So then she and Brienne go to visit Jamie, and she wants to be alone with him. And he says to her, uh, come to say goodbye, Lady Stark. I believe it's my last night in this world. Mm-hmm. Is that a woman? <laughs> is that a woman? <laughs> Which he said, <laughs> like, he's so serious. And then, like, it's just, like, mesmerized by Brienne. He keeps coming back to her at, like, funny moments. And so she's talking about how he's a man without honor, you know, and all that. And how he's forsaken every vow that he's taken. He has a great monologue where he puts it in, in perspective from his point of view. He says, there's so many vows, you know, they make you swear and swear, defend the king, obey the king, obey your father, protect the innocent, defend the weak. Well, what if your father despises the king? 
What if the king massacres the innocent? It's too much. No matter what you do, you're forsaking one vow or another. <sighs> then he like is distracted by Bran again. Where did you find this beast? <laughs> Which is so funny. Like how emphatic he is with the like with his description of her and his wonder. Where did you find this beast? Where did he get those wonderful toys? So great. And so she replies, she's a truer knight than you'll ever be, Kingslayer. And he's like, Kingslayer. <laughs> and what a king he was. You know, here's to Ares Targaryen, second of his name, lord of the seven kings, protector of the realm, and to the sword that I shoved in his back. She's like, you're a man without honor, which is one, you know, this is the, the literal manifestation of the uh, episode title, but as you so eloqu eloquently described before, we have a number of cases of options for who that could be in this episode, the man without honor. Well, the irony here is that she said it right after a description of probably the most honorable thing that could be argued that Jamie did. Right, yeah, totally. Kingslayer, it's like the his... The crowning lifetime achievement of Jamie Lannister saving the, the population of King's Landing and ending the reign of a mad, <laughs> fire-breathing king, essentially. Right. Um, and this is the moment where Jamie goes full Dark Knight Joker, which uh, I don't know if you remember that scene from the, uh, the Dark Knight where the Joker is prisoner at Gotham uh, police station and he's being interrogated. Remember that? I do. I, I've seen that movie many, many times. I just don't know what, what scene you're referring to. It's a, it's like the exact same scenario as we have here with Jamie. He's talking with this guy who comes in and is like talking with him briefly. And he's like, he's like, you know, right before people die, they show you who they really oh, are. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right. So in a way, I knew your friends better than you ever did. Right. <laughs> Uh, so so that's just like Jamie here and he's like he's like do you know I've never been with any woman other than Cersei so in my own way I have more honor than your own poor dead Ned oh my gosh dead Ned just like the Joker like you know maybe I knew them your friends better than you ever did maybe I had more honor than your poor husband you know <laughs> I thought that was hilarious first time I noticed that parallel um this rewatch, I love the Joker, so that that got me all excited. I know, the first picture I ever saw of you was you dressed up as a Joker, right in the car, and Jason posted that for my birthday or something. Something, yeah, it was like right after you started podcasting with right. him. Yeah, I think I know the picture. The first picture that he posted, we were in like complete and total Joker cosplay. Driving my car, right? Like, like, what does this guy waving. look like? <laughs> Looks like a madman. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so that was, yeah, <laughs> I love the whole Joker thing. And, uh, then he goes on in Joker slash Hannibal Lecter mode, just tormenting Cat even further. What was the name of that bastard he fathered? You know, and she says, Brienne. And he says, no, that wasn't it. <laughs> so that, that was pretty funny. Snow, a bastard from the North. Now, when... When good old Ned came home with some whore's baby, did you pretend to love it? No, you're not a very good at all. You're not very good at pretending. You know, you're an honest woman. You hated that boy, didn't you? How could you not hate him? The walking, talking reminder of that honorable Lord Eddard Stark fucked another woman. This is Hannibal Lecter style at this point. Um, like severe psychological manipulation and 
using like the Socratic method to break down your your <laughs> your victim. It worked. Yeah, and so that at that point she's like, "Your sword to Brienne," and Brienne's sword is unsheathed and ching, like you get that great sound. And then that's when the scene cuts. But I love this scene. We get you know more mention of Silence of the Lambs parallels with Hannibal Lecter here. Um, as opposed to Buffalo Bill a couple episodes yeah. ago with Mel- Melisandre. <laughs> this is officially our the... third reference. Right. Every <laughs> fucking week. And now we get Dark Knight Joker Jamie, which is awesome here. Um, Joker even, Jamie, like, Lecter Jamie. <laughs> yeah, it's even, like, even the way that they're sitting is the same. The Joker is sitting with his butt on the floor with his back against the wall in this, mm-hmm. in this room while he's given this this speech to this guy and Jamie's like sitting with his butt in the ground and his back against the, the, the pen here while, while they're going, you know, always talking with Lady Stark too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that pretty much wraps up my number one. Cool. Gosh, great Jamie episode. Hadn't seen him in a really long time and it was a, a good payoff. Yeah, definitely. Lots of good Jamie stuff. Lots of good but, Lannisters. Uh, Oh, Lannisters in general. Yeah, Mm -hmm. lots of good Lannister action this episode. We got more Lannisters than usual. And we got one dead Lannister. Yeah. One dead Lannister. We'll get more of those as we continue to move along. Many more. (laughs) Many more dead Lannisters. (laughs) Stay tuned for more dead Lannisters. Back after this. (laughs) Uh, Any other notes you want to talk about? Um, Well, we did not talk about Karth at all. And... um, I mean, we touched on it a little bit with with Jorah, but, um, you know, there was a big reveal in this episode about where uh, the dragons are and who took them. Yeah. Um, You know, and then there was uh, the warlock is Pyat Pri, correct? That um, turned himself into 12 of them so that he could kill... I think he killed 11. Yeah, 11, 11 of, the 13, of the 13. Slit yeah. them slit their throats. Um and Zaro, the f- you know, fake richest man in the world is now the king of Karth. <laughs> um you know, I thought that was really interesting too that he he said, "Let's go to my vault and I'll show you what I can buy with, you know, my many whatevers." And I'm thinking to myself, there is nothing in that vault. Yeah, it's a confidence game. Well, it's just like you, what, what would you have done if she called, called your bluff on that and said, okay, yeah, let me see. Yeah. He'd be like, come on. I was just kidding. Like, you get it. Like, <laughs> but yeah, well, you're right. Let's do it after this. Let's go. We got a meeting to go to, you know? I, yeah. I love the revelation of how it was revealed that the warlocks had the dragon because they're accusing, um, Danny is accusing the spice, the spice Lord King. of having something to do with it. Right. Mm-hmm. And he says that, you know, your dragons will bring the world nothing but death and misery, my dear. And if I knew where they were, I would not tell you, which is pretty hardcore. Um, and Pyat Pri says, <laughs> you are cruel, my friend. The mother of dragons is in the right. She must be reunited with her babies. She needs her babies. I will help you, Khaleesi. <laughs> so funny. Yeah. How? I will take you to the House of Undying, where I have put them. Where I have put them, yeah. And you just right. sit there, you're like, well, motherfucker, we knew it. <laughs> yeah. Like, what the fuck? Creepy ass motherfucker. She's like, you have my dragons. And he's like, yeah, yeah, she just told you that. Um, <laughs> so, um, 
When I learned you were coming to our city, I made an arrangement with the king of Karth. He procured them for me. And uh, she's like, but there is no king of Karth. And Zaro rises to his feet. This monstrous dude. There is now. That was the other half of the arrangement. You would keep your gates and your minds closed to everything outside your walls, but Karth cannot remain the greatest city there ever was if it refuses to change. I will open up Karth to the world as I have forced it to open itself to me. And uh, the, the warlock Pyapri has a super creepy line in a couple seconds where he says, The mother of dragons will be with her babies. She will give them her love and they will thrive by her side forever. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a great, hilarious, scary, terrifying line. And you kind of get an idea of... Uh, like a hint of the dynamic which they reveal in the season finale, which is that the dragons are born and their magic is stronger. So they want the dragons to grow stronger so their magic can go str grow stronger. So they're going to keep the dragons captive and take Danny captive so that she can make them stronger mm -hmm. and they'll grow stronger in her presence so that the warlocks themselves will grow stronger. Essentially, they're using the dragons as fuel for their own strength. So they'd sort of explain that later, but we get a hint to that now with this creepy line by Pyat Pri. Uh, and that's when the warlock clones step forward and kill the throats of the 13 or the 11 of the 13. Crazy. So Danny runs to escape and they're everywhere mm -hmm. and they're immune to harm as we find out as Jorah stabs one through the back. And it's unfazed, just creepily staring at Danny with its wide eyes, saying, A mother should be with her children. <laughs> so creepy. And then disappearing like Obi-Wan Kenobi, leaving only a robe falling to the floor. I love that. Yeah, and then another one appears. Where will you run to, Daenerys Stormborn? The dragons await you in the House of the Undying. Come see them. You're like, okay, I guess I guess we're doing this. <laughs> I guess that's where we're going. I guess this is my life now. Yeah, Cersei also has a Mad King moment when she says, we'll rain fire down on them from above, mm -hmm. which is pretty funny. And we learn that Stannis' fleet is just four or five days out, so the Battle of Blackwater Bay is imminent. Yeah, and Joffrey has to, you know, just time for Joffrey to start acting like a king. The yeah. war that he started is coming to their doorstep. Yep. Which is interesting. Um, but yeah, so, you know, we see, I think this is the last time we see Quaithe. Yeah, uh, and man, what a crazy scene with her, huh? When she's like, are you going to betray, um, are you going to betray her again? And he's like, never. Yeah, he's, and you can tell he means it, too. Mm-hmm. That's a great, great scene. She's like painting um, some dude's back. So that he could get, uh, get through old Valeria, correct? Oh, that's what she's talking about. I wasn't sure if she was referencing Jorah as he was approaching because he does sail past old Valeria coming up when, when he ends up capturing Tyrion. But maybe she's putting like a magical ward on this guy who's planning on going to old Valyria. And now that you're saying that, that makes um, sense of, I think it's Sir Patrick who mentions this in his feedback, that this may be Euron Greyjoy, who's lying there preparing to travel through Valyria as he claims to have done in the future. Well, that's an interesting thought. And it's the guy's got the same hairstyle. Does he look like a pirate? He does. He does. Does he, he looks look like, like a pirate. Captain Jack Sparrow? 
<laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> um, so Quaith is super creepy, man. As she as Jorah approaches, she knows and says, Jorah the Andal, this man must sail past old Valyria. All who travel close to the doom must have protection. So that's must be what she's doing. She's painting a protective ward or something under this guy's back. Um, some symbol. And we know Jorah doesn't do this before he goes through old Valyria and he gets grayscale. So maybe he should have. Um, so he says, I didn't come here for lessons. And she says, no, you came for dragons. Sure, he knows. And she's like, you have them? Or he's like, you have them? Where are they? And he places his hand on the hilt of his sword. And she knows. She says, draw your sword. Steal it, see what your steel is worth. And she turns around and stands up to face him. And man, she is creepy with that red lacquer mask and everything. That All those, like those hexagons that are similar to Melisandre's necklace. Yep. The elongated hexagons. Yeah, and so she says, you want to please the mother of dragons. You love her. And he, you know, you can tell he does. Mm -hmm. And he, he diverts from that, from having to answer by saying, where are the dragons? And that's like, she had knelt back down already and was painting. And she says, will you betray her again, Jorah the Andal? And he's shocked by the fact that she knows that he's betrayed her. And that's, again, she stands to face him again, and she's looking right into his eyes and says, will you betray her again? And he says, never. Never. With absoluteness, you know, and you know it's true. He will never betray Daenerys Stormborn again. He never does. Um, I think the last time that he betrayed her was moments beforehand when he had gone to look for a ship. I think that was the last time that he had communicated back to um, King's Landing. I think you're right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's that whole scene, which is really cool. Um, I liked Cersei again with her compassion to Sansa and seeming so lovely when she calls her her little dove again. It's um, interesting she, because Sandor calls... Um, Little bird. Little bird. And she right. is very much a caged bird right now. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. She's being saved for another little dove to be married off as love love birds. Yeah, oh, that's funny. And she, uh, she, Cersei basically gives Sansa permission to not love Joffrey. To not have to love Joffrey here. She's like, you know, she, like you mentioned, she says that only, only love your children, you know. Um, the, the, more the more people, people you, that love, you love, the weaker, the weaker you, are. you are. Yeah, creepy. Um, it's interesting because that's how she feels about love and, and weakness. And um, Theon says cruelty is better than weakness. Right. And then John just loves everybody, and that's made him super strong. That's true. You know, like his love for the realm and humanity as a whole has united the kingdoms and elevated to him to a position of extreme power so you know it could be said both ways i guess different strokes for different folks i think john's way is the best way yeah i do too for sure and that's john's learning curve that i talked about earlier um so come she... on people now smile <laughs> yeah. on your brother everybody come together try to love one another right now. <laughs> sorry <laughs> flower child moment so Sansa says to Cersei, well, should, shouldn't I love Joffrey, your grace? And she says, you can try, little dove, which is a good little moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
think that pretty much wraps up my notes. How about you? Me too. We got it all. All right. Then we will take a little break. So uh, stay with us because there's more to come. about Game of Thrones. Take it away, Kay. So, thanks, Dunk. Um, (laughs) So, there were lots of nominations this week for Game of Thrones. I was very pleasantly surprised. Not surprised as in, wow, Game of Thrones was nominated for something weird. Just, I mean, like... Are you talking about the Golden Globes? Well, after Golden Globes, so... So, nominated for what? so, um, So, this week... Uh, Game of Thrones has been nominated for the directors. Uh, they've got three nominations for the Directors Guild of America awards. Oh. Uh, they've got two. They're up for two awards for the American Society of Cinematographers, and they're up for. They're nominated for Makeup and Hairstyle Guild awards, and they're nominated for a PGA award for the seventh year in a row, which is the uh, annual Producers Guild Award. Um, cool. So they've got a lot. So I've got, um, but what was the most interesting to me was that um, for the Directors Guild of America, they, it says for outstanding directorial achievement in a dramatic series, uh, Jeremy Podswa is Podeswa, under, I think. Thank you. Is under consideration for The Dragon and the Wolf. Matt Shackman is nominated for The Spoils of War. And Alan Taylor is up for his work on Beyond the Wall. Personally, um, I think this is a no-brainer. You'll see that I, if you're on Twitter and you follow us on Twitter at GOM Podcast, uh, I put up my favorite pick already. And that's Matt Shackman for The Spoils of War, which... Um, if you're not familiar with episode titles, that is the epicness that is the loot train, uh, the loot train battle. battle from last Ooh. season. Um, easily my favorite episode of the season, last season, easily. Nice. So um, the shortest episode of the series. Oh, yeah. It, it was, was like 51 minutes. So and much packed in there, too, for being the shortest episode of the entire series. I thought we were going to get cheated out of, you know, 10 extra minutes. And then I did not feel cheated. Not at all. There's it's packed full of content. Yeah. I mean, one of the greatest gifs of all time now is of Drogon taking out <laughs> that whole that Almost whole taking out line. Jamie. Oh, the whole line of, yeah, yeah, true. So awesome. Oh. You got Epic. a lot of Braun with his guy liner and Yep. You know. <laughs> Braun's the man. And then, you know, Alan Taylor for Beyond the Wall, that's the East Watch Seven right there. So Yeah. Tis. Some great episodes that are up for I you know, for this is a very um stacked category already, but I mean to have three I think of the five nominations, I'm pretty sure that Game of, Game of Thrones is going to win this one. So just which yeah. episode. Um, and fun fact, Matt Shackman uh, is known for uh, directing It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. So, yes, you know, ma'am. 
<laughs> you got that going for you. Yeah, how crazy is that? Two totally different styles. I know. That stuck out to me too. Oh, I like that. Um, so I guess um, I have like three articles that I've kind of melded into one here. So I'll just keep going. Um, so the American Society of Cinematographers, um, that says that um, they've released their nominations for their 2017 awards. And uh, Game of Thrones has gotten two nominations. So... They have their uh, cinematographers represent two different episodes. It's Robert McLaughlin for The Spoils of War and Gregory Middleton for Dragonstone, which was episode one. Um, Great episode. Yeah. Um, and Spoils of War is, of course, fantastic. Blue train. Blue yeah. train. I'd <laughs> say cinematography was pretty good. Oh, yeah. Amazing. It's interesting for the cinematography award here. Um, we've got two very different styles of cinematography for these two episodes. Dragonstone is when they first arrived to Dragonstone and there's lots of vast sweeping shots of the island and the bridge and the dragons flying over the overhead and the castle from different angles mm -hmm. and the throne room that they built that massive set just for this episode or, you know, and to continue to use and uh, the spoils of war, which is like battle cinematography so tight shots of you know lots of action happening and lots of different things that are all like blended together in the post-production to make it look like it's all happening at once so two vastly different styles of uh, of cinematography well and that sequence where they're going through the fog of it all Right, right. The dust up from the burning and the smoke and, and the cameras just like going right through um, just kind of what's going on underneath all the burning with, you know, people burning alive and the fighting. And yeah. um, it, there, it was that scene with the Dothraki coming over the hill. Right. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. oh, oh gosh, man. it was amazing. It was amazing. <laughs> so awesome. <laughs> And oh, oh when man. when they when they jumped on their horsebacks and then they like they killed it over to the side and they start taking out horses' knees. Oh my gosh! I have to. You know what? I'm gonna watch this like as soon as we're done. <laughs> nice. Yeah, such an epic episode. That was two my favorite really good episode. cinematography episodes <laughs> for sure. That's your favorite of all? Uh, no. It's up there, <laughs> but no. Hard home is still. Battle of the Bastards, oh. Hard Home. Those are still... Do you like the big heavy action episodes? I do. Very much so. I like yeah, the Jon Snow episodes. <laughs> <laughs> you like the season finale where you get naked Jon Snow? No, I don't. I, I like Warrior Jon Snow. <laughs> He's a warrior, warrior of love. Yeah. You know, I'm going to see him in the cave soon. It's going to be exciting. <laughs> True. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways the last uh the last and final nomination that came out this week was um the let me go to it was game of thrones nominated for makeup and hairstyle guild awards so the, um they nominated the makeup artist jane walker and nicola matthews for best period char character makeup um their fellow nominees are the makeup teams of the crown saturday night live bright and stranger things um, I personally think that they have it in the bag, but 
who am I to say? Um, <laughs> Kevin Alexander and Al- uh, Candace Banks are up for best period character hairstyling against hairstylists for The Crown, Glow, Saturday Night Live, and Vikings. And mm. lastly, Barry Gower and Sarah Gowers. Oh, funny. Barry Gower and Sarah Gowers are yeah, nominated for best special makeup effects alongside the teams for The Orville, Saturday Night Live, Stranger Things, and The Walking Dead. <sighs> nice. So, um, results will be announced on February 24th and we'll see, we'll see who gets what. Yeah. We'll uh, keep you guys updated on that. Oh, there's one more. (laughs) (laughs) Holy cow. Um, and then lastly, we have the PGA award, uh, the producers guild awards. Um, Game of Thrones has been nominated for the seventh year in a row. Wow. (laughs) Um, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, so season seven has been nominated for the Norman Felton Award for Outstanding Producer of Episodic Television Drama. As impressive as season seven was, though, the competition is admittedly pretty stiff. Game of Thrones is up against season one of The Handmaid's Tale, Big Little Lies, and season two of Stranger Things and The Crown. All pretty good, but Game of Thrones, you know, next level. I think so too. I was surprised yeah. when um Handmaid's Tale won uh at the Golden Globes. They won over they won over a show and I was I was very very surprised. Hmm. And now I can't think of it. Oh well. <laughs> Clearly I really cared. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Uh. So yeah, that's it for the awards. Nice. <laughs> the awards section of our podcast. Then we have another little funny item from uh, Watchers on the Wall about Brad Pitt, who recently bid $120,000 to watch Game of Thrones with Amelia Clark. So it, um, I guess he had originally bid 80000 80, to hang out with Amelia and watch it, and then upped his own bid to 90,000. And then Kit Harrington came back from the bathroom and offered to join in as well to watch the episode and be part of the bidding. So he then upped his bid to 120,000 to watch the episode with both of them, but then was outbid by somebody else who paid 160k to watch an episode with uh, Amelia and Kit. That's so pretty awesome. Funny. Yeah, I mean, he should have uh if I was Brad Pitt, I would have won that bidding for sure. And I would have kicked out Kit Harrington. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, so next we'll move on to our continuation of our um, examination of Game of Thrones as myth. Reading editorials from winteriscoming.net from their uh, series Game of Thrones as myth. So this week we are covering the Hound as the archetypal Dark Knight. I love and, it. Um, we can like go back and forth again with this if you want. So the we can find a number of parallels between Sandor Clegane and a famous dark warrior, Duncan, from Greek myth. <laughs> Hades, the god of the underworld. Hades was both feared and loathed, and the gates of his realm were guarded by the three-headed hound named Cerberus. According to legend, Hades abducts Persephone, the daughter of Zeus and Demeter, to join him in the underworld. In Game of Thrones, Sandor abducts Arya, the daughter of a powerful family, for ransom money. The ancient Greek god of war, Ares, also shares aspects of the archetype. Like Sandor, Ares represents the physical prowess needed for victory in war. He is dangerous and nigh unstoppable. 
Although he's not a knight, Sandor also brings to mind the literary stock character of the Black Knight, a specific kind of dark warrior. The Black Knight would paint his plate armor black to obscure his coat of arms and make it impossible for an opponent to recognize him in the field, which allowed him to perform nefarious acts for his lord without witnesses certifying his identity. Although Sandor does temporarily don the armor of the Kingsguard after the removal of Barristan Selmy, he refuses knighthood and soon returns to wearing his favorite color, black. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, pretty cool. Uh, This device of black armor as camouflage uh, pops up often in literature, such as when King Richard the Lionhearted travels in disguise in Ivanhoe and the encounter with the hilarious Black Knight defending the tiny bridge in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Remember that? Yes, very much so. (laughs) (laughs) It's just a flesh wound. Come back here, I'll gnaw your legs off. (laughs) (laughs) Also, keep in mind the tale of the black-clad King Pelinor. Pelinor? Looks like it. Okay. Confronting the young King Arthur in the Arthurian Tales. Pelinor defeats Arthur three times in the joust before breaking Arthur's sword, and the sorcerer Merlin must cast a spell on Pelinor in order to save Arthur from injury. Pelinor goes on to form a powerful relationship with Arthur. Typically, black knights are anonymous. In the case of Sandor, who is not a true knight, his unwillingness to bear a coat of arms may speak to his sense that he only serves himself and nobody else. This becomes even more pronounced once Sandor abandons Joffrey and the Lannisters out of the Battle of Blackwater Bay. Coming soon to a podcast near you. Sandor's childhood trauma leads him to embrace the dark warrior archetype, similar to how Batman, known as the Dark Knight, embraces his vendetta against criminals after witnessing his parents' murder while still very young. Sandor's terrible facial scarring is the root cause of both his fear of fire, reflecting his wild primitive side since all animals are afraid of fire, and his terrible relationship with his monstrous older brother. His disdain for knighthood and chivalry stems directly from the hypocrisy he sees in most, quote, knights, and the travesty of the dishonorable Gregor having been knighted by Rhaegar Targaryen, a paragon of knighthood. Despite his difficulties, Sandor does have good in him, certainly more than his brother. He, like Robert E. Howard's Howard's brutish hero Conan the Barbarian, operates under a raw yet identifiable code. Under the barbaric code of chivalry followed by the Cimmerian Conan, killing of fighters and plundering of cities is acceptable, but rape and the murder of children and innocents are not. We see part of Sandor's dark warrior code with elements of the protector archetype emerge in his interactions with Sansa Stark. When the insane Joffrey has Sansa Sansa, stripped and beaten in Garden of Bones, Season 2, Episode 4, Sandor steps forward to cover her with his cloak after Tyrion puts a stop to the scene. It's a small but significant act, a call to dignity when the king and nobles and knights, in quotes, are acting undignified. Sandor later saves Sansa from getting raped by rioters during The Old Gods and the New, Season 2, Episode 6. Later, when she admonishes him for being hateful, he responds with, you'll be glad of the hateful things I do someday when you're queen, and I'm all that stands between you and your beloved king, A Man Without Honor, Season 2, Episode 7. 
this is the perfect time to talk about this. I know, I saw that, and I just like, perfect. <laughs> Having already played the parts of a Dark Warrior and Protector, Sandar also serves as a major threshold guardian for Arya Stark. He is a temporary captor, a cyclops like Polyphemus in Homer's Odyssey, who must be overcome in order for the hero, Arya, to continue her quest. But his role in this story... But his role in this part of the story is more complicated than that. He and Arya develop a complex, sometimes codependent relationship during their journey, and Sandor saves her life when they stumble into the Red Wedding Massacre in The Reigns of Castamere, Season 3, Episode 9. As their travels continue, he and Arya get involved in a number of bloody skirmishes, often initiated by Arya's obsession with revenge. Hate is a powerful motivation both characters share, as Sandor tells her in First of His Name, Season 4, Episode 5. Hates as good a thing as any to keep a person going, better than most. And that's pretty similar to what Baelish recently said in the rewatch about how revenge is the most pure of motivations. And so there's a lot more to that article if you go to um, winterscoming.net. If you just search for Game of Thrones as myth, you can find the Hound as the Archetypal Dark Knight article and read the rest. We will be right back with Raven's Calls. Matthew Rep, talk about foreshadowing when Theon says he doesn't want his men to see him as a fool and a eunuch. Yeah, that's some serious foreshadowing for sure. Vaginus Vagilator says, <laughs> the flip a coin line, Cersei once again holds us down and beats us in the face with hints that Ares is she and Jamie's father. Once again, nobody notices. The idea is labeled crackpot. <laughs> yeah, good catch. On a punka, punka. Oh, that sounds Anna, good. I think you do need to call us. <laughs> <laughs> Just finished your episode of Garden of Bones. Loved it as always. The last try pronouncing my name was actually almost right. It's like punk, but with a German e at the end. Maybe I can find a way to send you a voicemail to clarify. Yes, please do that. <laughs> Thanks. Also, fun fact on The Ghost of Harrenhal, which I am just watching now. So sorry if someone has already mentioned it. Did you notice how the Night's Watch suddenly only has ponies with them north of the wall? I think that they just started filming in Iceland for the lands of always winter because these are Icelandic ponies. It's forbidden to import any horses onto the island of Iceland due to avoiding the risk of getting foreign diseases. Once an Icelandic pony has been sold outside the country, it can never wow. return. I never noticed that before and just realized this now that they had horses before thanks for the great show and all the effort you put into it looking forward to catching up with you and then adding to the feedback of current episodes thanks so much thanks anna yeah um i love that story i love yeah, that that's little cool. tidbit Who knew? of information i had no idea that that was even a thing yeah me neither now i gotta go back and look at the ponies yeah i gotta see what they look like thanks anna that's really cool Wendy Ott Eppers says, Theon lost some valuables. Did you pull a <laughs> knife on me in the night? You're a pretty lad. Girls would claw each other's eyes out to get with you. <laughs> Sansa gets a visitor. <laughs> Aunt Flo. Uh, Shay tries to protect Sansa. Cersei has a moment of honesty with Cersei. <laughs> I think she, maybe she means Tyrion. Probably. Or Sansa. Find my dragons and... Uh, Laura Willie Swink replies, Aw, so poor Sir Friendzoned. 
I loved this passage between the ill-fated Alton Lannister and Jamie. Did this surprise anyone else? Yes. Surprised me. I didn't see that coming. How about you? When you first saw it? No, not at all. Really cool scene not to experience for the I first time. I was shocked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. You're going to have to die. Okay. <laughs> and he's like, what? 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 <laughs> it's great. That sucks. Uh, Lucy Roberts says, is this the last time Cersei acts like a decent human being? Her scene with Sansa is almost touching. One thing I've always been confused about in this episode is whether the rest of the Ironborn know that the bodies aren't Bran and Rickon. They must know, mustn't they? Or do they not say anything to back up Theon? Good question. I imagine at least one or two of them must know. Dagmar Kettlefuck. He has to know. (laughs) I don't know his name. (laughs) What's his name? Dagmar Cleftjaw in the books. Thank you. But he doesn't seem to have a cleft jaw on the show. Yeah, I think he knows because I, the way he's been acting, my guess is it's been his ideas. Yeah, and Theon just does everything he says consistently. Yeah, no way Theon thought of that on his no own. Way. What a brutal moment, though, the way Lewin like screams when he sees Brandon Rickon. <laughs> At least Lewin gets to find out that they didn't really die before he dies himself. That's good. Mm-hmm. Nikki Campbell-Keith says, I get so excited when I see a new episode download, especially a nice long one. Y'all do a great job. It's very appreciated. With a couple uh, kissy emojis, kissy face emojis. Thanks, Nikki. Oh, thanks, Nikki. Well, good, because they keep getting longer. Yeah, that's what she said. <laughs> oh, <my laughs> uh, Michael Scott in the house. <laughs> Um, we have a Facebook message from Obsidian Crow, a.k.a. Sarah Travis. Hi, Travis. Hey, um, you guys should check him out on Facebook. He's got great pictures all the yeah. time. Good content. Uh, hey, guys. It's been a bit since I wrote in. Been super busy lately. This weekend, I'm leading an expedition to the frozen north of Mount Hood, Oregon for a season seven photo shoot, as well as just finished up shooting this past weekend with a few pals. Anyways... This episode has so much packed into it. I love that the earlier seasons give us more jumping around from characters. Rob's camp, John beyond the wall, Theon being all crazy and shit, <laughs> Danny and her dragons being kidnapped. Ah, the early seasons of drama, the sub- summer children of seasons. Ha, ha. <laughs> you know nothing, John Snow. <laughs> Cheers, guys. Keep it up. Cheers, mate. Thanks for writing in. Yeah. Fuck yeah. And yeah, the the, um, the pictures he's been taking up north are fantastic, man. Yeah, he's got a real broody Jon Snow. Yeah, there's a... he's He does a Jon Snow cosplay, and then he's got another guy who does a, a Jon Snow cosplay, too. And Travis was doing the, I, the, the photography this this shoot, I guess. Um, but yeah, there's like great shots of this guy. It's like, It looks like Jon and Sam at a castle, basically. It's sick. Yeah. Yeah. Find some good spots. We'll, yeah, we'll link to it on Facebook. Vaginus Vagilator, a.k.a. Sir Patrick, says, Quick points. Cersei flip a coin quote. She's a waters, damn it. So that means that uh, the bastards born in this area are known as waters um, instead of snow. You know, there's like snow, waters, mm-hmm. sand, etc. These are all the bastard names. So in this case, he's hinting that Cersei is a Targaryen bastard, that Ares is her father. So she's a waters, damn it. So is Jamie, which is why he isn't suited to chains like a dragon. And in stark contrast to Ned, you know, fire and ice. It's perfect. Uh, good catch, uh, Sir Patrick. 
pun avoidable, which I believe GRRM Grimm gets a real chuckle about. In the scene where Jamie escapes, he speaks with heartfelt nostalgia of his days of fighting with the Justice League against the Legion of Doom. This is the only <laughs> other entry on his page in the book besides Kingslayer. Although his noble and her- heroic deeds go unsung, neither do his shameful acts. At least the book doesn't include titles like Kinslayer and Brand Pusher. <laughs> He's a boy who never <laughs> lost and doesn't know how to be afraid. Tywin describes Rob and unbeknownst to him, the other men without honor. In this episode, Jamie, John, and Theon, however, get to learn from their mistakes, but must lose a part of themselves, the part that offended. In John's case, it's his good heart, the one that will get us all killed. Um, even Danny acts like a noobish girl and loses dragons. Iceland is chosen as the location for all scenes that take place north of the wall because they need snowy volcanic terrain because the Arrowhead Mountain is a volcano. The same volcano that destroyed Hardhome and which still has branches of subterranean lava tubes that heat up hot springs for wildling sex baths and for Winterfell's steam heating system. Tywin orders the mountain to do dastardly things and gives him backhanded praise for his, quote, talent for violence. While Gregor loves to do the dirty work, Tywin is the one who orders it. We see the same relationship with Cersei and Frankenmountain later on. Of course, Tywin gave the order to savage Elia Martell and her children. Once again, we are given the answer before we have the question. Some Clegane cunt. To kill highborn children so the lion keeps his claws spot-free. Tywin departs in the next episode, appointing Arya as his cupbearer. He knows what Clegane would do if left alone with her, even if he doesn't order it, which you know he does. Thus, Tywin arranges to have Elia killed while maintaining plausible deniability. Similar to how he constantly arranges to put Tyrion in harm's way. This comparison sheds light on how Tyrion, Tyr- Tywin regards Tyrion. Because we can see that Tywin does not have a or does have a sort of paternal affection for Arya, he won't let affection or kindness make him soft like his own father. Stark contrast to Theon, who gets the perception of having blood of highborn children on his hands, even though he doesn't. And to Rob, who is about to let affection overcome his sense of duty. In alignment with previous episodes, stark contrast with Tywin against Rob, who doesn't know what to do with his prisoners, though neither of them approve of torture. Tywin talks to Arya about how Aegon ensured a thousand-year dynasty by changing the rules. Foreshadows Red Wedding and Arya's The Rules Were Wrong speech in Season 7. Euron ass cameo. That's what I was talking about with, uh, with uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> Quaith there. Theon's Ironborn Sucker Punch. Theon sucker punches his portly, bald antagonist shipmate, not intended as a euphemism, <laughs> but as a type. As I type this, I wonder if it is symbolic of the oafish lummox in his pants, the one that he thinks it can steer the ship all by itself without Theon's authority. Holy shit. And that was Theon's like one badass scene that he's got so far in this whole series, uh, pre-reek, is that he was badass enough to beat that one guy up, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyways, the sucker punch shows us, first of all, that Theon is strong as fuck when he connects his blows. He just has to connect. People who want to criticize this fight scene with a strikingly similar lummox, the same guy in Season 7, Episode 7, should stop their whinging and have a rewatch. Good hound reference there with the whinging. Mm, that's true. Um, even at the height of his we- of weakness, Theon stabs a guy through, plate mail, through a plate mail breastplate. In a deleted scene from this season, Loras, while mourning Renly, remarks that stabbing through a breastplate is not easy. Granted, that may not be a move Loras has had too much practice with while playing at war. 
but it still says that the show is aware that such a feat takes strength and skill. The season 7 beach fight shows Theon trying to attack a taller guy than himself who has longer limbs. This telegraphs his attacks, and he can't connect until the oaf's attempted crotch knees bring him in close and give Theon the element of surprise. Theon's an archer. Archery is the original bowflex. He hits like a powerhouse so long as he hits as his hits land. The exception to this is the scene where he half-heartedly executes Roderick. He is only halfway committed to the Greyjoy way, so he doesn't strike hard and true, and it comes back to haunt him. I was a little boy when I was torn away from my home. You're still a little boy, Theon. It's all just a game. Yeah, until someone loses a cock. <laughs> <laughs> Losing his cock is ironically the means by which Theon transitions into manhood. <laughs> he thusly kills the boy and becomes the man. Wow, that is so funny. Thanks, Sir Patrick. Your insight is always, you know, very poignant. Here's an email uh, from Lord Tom Moore. Hi, Duncan and Kristen. Hey, hey Tom. <laughs> Thanks for continuing to make great podcasts for us. I love the show and our and your dynamic works really well. I'm thanks. 100% behind the ideas you have. Yeah, thanks. Uh, have had for additional content for the podcast during the long night between seasons. <laughs> I live for all the behind the scenes stuff. So the more you can nerd out, the better. Here's my thoughts on this week's episode. The episode title, Man Without Honor, might allude to several characters. Number one, John always aspires to act with honor, but Ygritte is making him feel dishonorable by tempting him with huh. sex. I said the same thing. Yes, great minds. Number two, Jorah is being overtly honorable towards Daenerys because he's secretly feeling guilty about betraying her. Dude, <laughs> are, were you in? Were you in the room? <laughs> Number three, Rob is almost being too honorable, and it makes his bannerman hate him for it. Rob acts in the fashion of his father, and it ends up getting him killed, just as it did for Ned. Number four. Ah, uh, you and I are about to really agree on some stuff, buddy. Everyone thinks Jamie has no honor, but we learn later how his actions that earned him the name Kingslayer were extremely honorable. He hasn't told the story to Brienne yet, but he hints at it when he talks to Kat. But what if your father despises the king? What if the king massacres the in innocent? It's too much. Later in the episode, Zaro says, <coughs> a man is what others say he is and no more. I agree. Five. Finally, and most obviously, Theon, who acts with no honor at all in the entire episode. In the scene at the farm, Theon says to Maester Lewin, I'm looking at spending the rest of my life being treated like a fool and a eunuch by my own people. Oh, how right he is. <laughs> yeah, seriously. I agree. Ned Stark always said 500 men can hold Winterfell against 10,000. Could this be foreshadowing on how 500 living men will have to hold Winterfell against 10,000 undead? That would be awesome. That's a really cool potentiality. Good catch. That'll probably be the very first battle, won't it? Yeah, one of them for sure. I mean, that's where they're headed. They're headed to Winterfell. Yeah. And they got to go through, yeah, they'll go, probably go through Winterfell before they uh, head further south, I imagine. Oh, ghost grass, ghost grass. Yeah, for real. Um, other bits that stood out, Sansa with the Hound, whose cloak is back on, by the way. Yeah, I huh. saw that too. I did see nice. that too. But he was, and what's interesting is that he was a totally different guy too. He was talking about, he, you know, he could, he could have told the king 
or uh, the queen about Sansa getting her period. And he acted very distant to her and said, you know, it's my job, you know, to to do it. Like, who who cares kind of thing. Like, they were all playing, like, little games. I don't think that he's the same guy in the cloak that he is outside of the cloak. But, yes, I I forget. It's like I, Baelish's voice changes. Yeah, because <laughs> I know. Sandor with and without the yeah. cloak. Clark Kent with and without the glasses. Yeah, see? Everybody has a everybody has a thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've forgotten just how bitter he is at this point. He's being really mean to Sansa, almost like he delights in scaring her. I don't get why he would tell tell on her about her bed blood. I mean, it was him who went to tell Cersei, right? Yeah, I don't know, dude. I think it was the handmaiden. Oh, uh, I doubt it. I think it was the hound. He mm. just can't have people saying that he's soft, so he like had to tell as soon as he saw it, you know? Yeah, but who knew? I mean, Sansa just the two Shea people in that known. room. Yeah, I yeah, I guess you just don't know, yeah, right? Yeah, you can't have anybody talking, you know, saying he's not doing his duty and whatnot. He doesn't know what motivation Shay has or who she works for. If I ever meet that actor, Rory McCann, right? Yep. McCann? McCann. Anyways, um, I would like to ask him that question. Yeah. Do you, does does he think that the hound is the one that told Cersei? Um, I like the exchange between Cersei and Sansa. Cersei is being so open and honest with her about how she loves Jaime, and she repeats this behavior later with Tyrion. She must really be missing Jaime and doesn't care who knows it, about it. I love Sansa's sweet response. Shouldn't I love Joffrey, your grace? You can try, little girl. <laughs> the last known bear of Dark Sister, at least in the books, was Bloodraven, right? If we follow the theory that Blood Raven became the Three-Eyed Raven and the Three-Eyed Raven is now Bran Stark, then could the dagger that Bran gave to Arya in Season 7 be standing in for Dark Sister? Or do you think it'll make an appearance along with many other missing Valerian Steel swords? Tom, you and I were like simpatico, man. <laughs> yeah, totally. And I do think that um, he, Dark Sister... that He prophesized our podcast. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. It's funny. <laughs> he's uh, he's quaffing us or something. Yes, he's our quaff. <laughs> so, yeah, I do think that the cat's paw dagger is standing in for Dark Sister on the series and that we'll get Dark Sister in the books. So definitely, yeah, great great email. Gosh, that would be really interesting. I, you know, I hope that there's a whole rundown of the Valerian steel swords that are left and where are they because John knows that they need them. Yeah. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that comes into play, you know, in the first couple of episodes to see if, you know, there's like some kind of roundtable discussion or something. Definitely. Next, we have an email from Sir Joseph of House Carson. I've only just recently discovered the podcast. I had no idea anyone could nerd out over any show as I do for Game of Thrones, so I appreciate the discussion immensely. For this episode, I have only two points to make. Tywin and Arya's War of Words is once again gold. Without realizing it, he teaches her her first true lesson on her way to becoming a faceless person. Know your role. Lowborn girls do not say my lord, after all. Yeah, that's a great point. So she, he's helping teaching her to uh, camouflage, which is exactly what faceless men do. Awesome. It's like the whole uh, thing. Yeah, so that's a great observation. He continues, Tyrion and Cersei's conversation would be the second. Though this is one of the few scenes with the two that I believe Hedy's performance is the better. 
At first glance, it may seem that she's in anguish over Joffrey's behavior, but I see more of her hatred for Tyrion in her tears. Interesting. Hmm. Thank you for your amazing podcast, Sir Joseph of Team Targ Stark. P.S. <laughs> Maestress for female maesters, perhaps. Remember we were talking Maestress. about that? Maestress is perfect. Yeah, yeah. I like it. <laughs> awesome. Thanks. Uh, now we just need one. Yeah, now we have one. <laughs> Thanks, uh, Sir uh, Sir Joseph. And we also have our Archmaester uh, Rennie, who's a maestress as well. Well, we should call her Archmaestress. Yeah. <laughs> Rennie, you let us know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then we have Pete's Corner. Here we are, uh, an email from Sir Pete of Longwood. Pete's Corner. Pete's Corner. Hey guys, I think Dan and Dave missed out on a great way to solve the fast travel problem in the show. Dirigibles. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just looking at the word. Dirigibles. Seriously, I picture them looking like the ones in the video game Bioshock Infinite. Big hydrogen-filled zeppelins. Yeah, I've been thinking about that lately. I don't play video games. But you know what a dirigible is, right? No. Like the Hindenburg... Oh, okay. Yeah, so he's... I thought that was just like a blimp. Yep, same thing in this case. Okay. So I've been thinking about dirigibles too. I thought it would be pretty cool to have like cruise ship dirigibles that float over the surface of the country to give people like a different view of of that. That'd be pretty cool. I think that... Aren't the dragons like a dirigible? <laughs> yeah, they're powered by hot air. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's great. A little finger could zip around the realm at believable speeds. Zaro Zohan could have a floating pleasure barge. And Mace Tyrell could get around in a stupid-looking pedal bag. And, of course, you could have a dragon try to mate with a blimp or even set one ablaze. Yes. Also, the Iron Island should use pelicans instead of ravens (laughs) to send messages. (laughs) I don't know why, but I know it's true. (laughs) And what would happen if I put wildfire in my gas tank? Would my car go magically fast? This story is so deep and rich with history and detail. I love thinking about what ifs and stuff. Hope you guys don't mind me sharing my brainwaves. No, Pete, not even a little bit. Do we mind? Sure. (laughs) Oh, here we go. I read somewhere that George originally wrote Littlefinger as a proprietor of an alternative pillow house named Middlefinger, who would stand in front of his establishment yelling, 10 stags per knuckle, 10 stags per knuckle. (laughs) But his editors had him rewrite the character because at the time, George had been eating nothing but Molly and Chex Mix, Molly and Chex Mix for the past three months (laughs) and was turning in... Strange, irrelevant drafts until he got clean and replaced his drug addiction with an addiction to silly conductor hats instead. Do you guys know if this is true? It's always a treat to find a new game of microphones in my recent podcast list. Dunk, you're great with the impressions. And Kristen, you have some great insights. Love, Sir Pete of Longwood, Breaker of Wind, Smoker of the Great Grass, G the Somewhat Burnt. (laughs) Like the great grass C, smoker of the great grass G. I like it. <laughs> That's hilarious. Oh, thanks, Sir Pete. Next, we have a voicemail from uh, Beavis and Butthead. <laughs> the Cobb Pie Riot was your number 
too. Jeffrey, kill him all, kill him all. Like a complete maniac? Yeah, no, I mean, no. Like a, a Targaryen. Yeah, because he's a Targaryen. No way, dumbass. He's not a Targaryen. Idiot, shut up. You shut up, bunghole. <laughs> Wait, no. Because he's a bastard. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's a bastard. That means he's a black fire. <laughs> no, dumbass. He's a waters. Oh. He's dumbass. <laughs> <laughs> priceless oh beavis and butthead <laughs> yeah thanks uh thanks beavis and butthead thanks guys <laughs> <laughs> fire <laughs> you had to do it didn't you <laughs> you're like i can't take it anymore yeah couldn't resist <laughs> that's awesome Alright, that's our show, everybody. Episode 59. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. Next week, we'll be covering Season 2, Episode 8, The Prince of Winterfell. Give it a watch and send us your thoughts. We'd love to read them on air. Yes, please do. And we have many different ways that you can leave, leave feedback as of this week. It's true. If you'd like to call us, you can reach us at 813-563-3739. That's 813-JOFFREY. If you'd like to write in, you can email us. Yes, at ravens at gameofmicrophones.com. Imp slap! Check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash gompodcast. You can also check us out on Instagram now at gompodcast or on Twitter at gompodcast. And uh, give us a like on Facebook and uh, an iTunes rating and review if you don't mind. We'd uh, really appreciate it. It, it. it would help us out quite a lot. Yeah. All right, that's our show. Thanks for listening. Thank you for fighting on my behalf, Lady Stark. I would have come to your defense, but... Take him to the stockades. Bind him with every chain you can find. You've become a real she-wolf in your later days. There's not much fish left in you. And gag him! It's really ambiguous. I don't know. I think she's... Well, okay. Oh, whoa. All that she wants is another baby. She's gone tomorrow, boy. Sorry. Thank you for putting Ace of Base in my head. Again. Like, I needed to prove myself so badly that I had to kill and burn beyond all recognition two small children. Well, fuck them, they had I, it coming. The orphans? No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> That's horrible. Where did he get those wonderful toys? The mother of dragons will be with her babies. She will give them her love and they will thrive by her side forever. Oh my gosh. <laughs>
I don't want to say vaginist vagilator. <laughs> we got it all.